0: Mike and I am an alcoholic. Uh, I tell you, he, he grows up well. <laughs> uh, um, I want to thank uh, Steve and Cindy for, for well, Cindy. Cindy's the one the that crowds to got me here uh, to come and be a part of your group. Um, I haven't been up here at Raptors in a long, long time. And of course, Jimmy and I, we go back a long, long way. Uh, when I was new. And uh, we used to, him and I, we were, we were running partners with a group of, from the Gong Show of Don R, and Crazy Horse, and all those guys, and, um, and you know, the interesting thing is, is that you know uh, every one of these people have always been about service, you know, they've always been about, you've got to give it away to keep it, and you're willing to go to any lengths to, to, to do that. And I remember, you know, for me, going to any links uh, um, represented a lot of things, but uh, when I got out, when I got out of, I'm a I'm an ex-con, um, and, uh, um, and uh, when I got out of the institutions um, and I started coming to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, getting involved in going to any links was not something that I was looking forward to. But these people that Jimmy and I ran around with, they were really about service. And, and they were going everywhere. And they used to just make us get in the car and go, you know. And whether you wanted to go or not, you got in the car and you went. And, uh, and it, you know, I mean, it was, it was one of those things where they call you at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and ask you, what are you doing? And you say, I'm sleeping. they say, well, be downstairs in an hour. We'll be by to pick you up. Where are you going? None of your business. Just show up, you know. And that's that's the kind of program I, sobriety, that I grew up with. Um, uh, Institutions and hospitals. (laughs) Steve and I, I, bless his heart. (laughs) You know, it it is an honor. It is an honor to have someone say to me that you are, you know, that I am a member, uh, like a member of their family and have been for a long, long time. and you know that that's that's an honor for me today, you know, because that has never ever been true before. Um, um, if you come from where I come from, um, people weren't happy to see me show up. Period. And uh, and and uh, where I was, they were hoping that they would keep me there. Um, but uh, but these are things are gifts that we get in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we go we we. we you, 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 you go through, let me put it this way, Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life that I'm so grateful for having today. It is a program that has worked for me and it has brought me a way of living that I never thought possible ever in my life. You know? And I have, I have, I've had different other ways of living life and this was not what I conceived to be uh, uh, what I thought it was going to be. And, and you know, I have a damn good life today. You know, in uh, November I'll celebrate <laughs> 25 years of sobriety and it's been one day at a time, just one day at a time. And for that, I'm forever grateful. Um, I don't know how much how much time do I have up here? 10.50. Ten, oh, 10.50. Oh, OK. Uh, wow. Um, let's see.
1: <laughs>
0: let's see. Uh, They say we share what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I want to say to those of you that are new here in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, please understand that anything I say from this podium is my own personal experiences. You know, most of the things that I'm aware of today um, um, are things that I became uh, uh, enlightened to in my sobriety. Um, I probably was aware of them, but I, I was not coherent to that fact. And it took many years of being sober to have things slowly revealed to me that that became a reality in my life. Um, um, so please understand, this is my experience with my sobriety and with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I truly believe in the big book. I believe that the big book is, is probably the one of the greatest books I've ever read, and, and I read it often. Um, <clears throat> I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to get sober. I didn't know I had a problem until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, uh, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, I come from a a family of 13 children, and my parents, they didn't didn't have a TV, so, um, um, you know, they had a lot of children. And, uh, uh, you know, and I had a younger sister who was uh, a few years younger than me and when I was five years old, uh, her and I were brought uh, to California to be raised by my great-aunt, who was a uh, full-blooded Cherokee Indian, and she was my, my father's, uh, uh, my grandmother on my father's side's uh, sister. And my father's half, Ch- uh, half Irish and half Cherokee Indian. If you're confused, my mother's black, and, um, and, uh, uh, and so I grew up in a very confused, crazy household. And like I said, my aunt uh, uh, raised me and my, my younger sister, and we were brought to California by, my, by her and her husband, who was uh, from Birmingham, Alabama, and they were, he was black. And, uh, and uh, they, were, they were black Baptists. They were Southern black Baptists. And they were dying the world. I mean, Orthodox Southern black Baptists. And they, they dressed a certain way, they act a certain way, they didn't smoke, they didn't curse, they didn't drink. You went to church three times a week in our house, and on Sunday you went to church all day. And that's the home I grew up in. And uh, the house I grew up in, like I said, uh, uh, you woke up in the morning hearing Mahala Jackson and went to bed to listen to Tex Ritter. Now, I don't understand what the kind of what the kind of was, but that's that's the house I grew up in. And like I said, you know, um, I found myself, uh, like I said, as a kid growing up, I didn't, you know, religion was a hard thing for me, and religion was hard for me mainly because it was always my parents or my aunt and uncle. Uh, uh, Attitude about what I was doing to determine on what side of God I was and it was always based on my behavior And that's all I knew and I knew that God was a very very uh, Contradictory thing for me because he represented so many different things. He represented love happiness death life uh, forgiveness uh, uh, Damnation and these were all based on on what I was doing and what my aunt and uncle determined was God's intent What's God's view on it was? And, and we went to church, and I hated going to church. I hated church more than anything else, because it was an all-day affair. And when you're a kid, you know, at my age, and like, like I said, we went to, they were black Baptists, and probably some of you have never been in a black Baptist church, but uh, uh, they, they had this thing about the Holy Spirit. So they worked really hard on Sundays to get it, see? And as a kid growing up, that was a terrifying experience for me because, I mean, you know, when you went to church and you're five, six years old, seven years old, and somebody's trying to get the Holy Spirit, usually she's about 300 pounds. It's terrifying, you know? And, uh, and uh, I mean, it used to scare me to death. I mean, my eyes used to get about yay big, man. I used to, I mean, I mean and I, I told my aunt, I said, beat me, do whatever you want, I'm not going to church, right? So I got beat a lot, and I went to church. And uh, as time went on, my aunt says, "We can't keep killing this kid." You we went to church in our home, so she looked around for a church, and of course, she found this Lutheran church. And uh, and uh, they're Missouri Lutheran. I don't know if there's any good Missouri Lutherans in here, and you don't get any more Orthodox than Missouri Lutheran. And and she liked that church, and uh, it was holy. They'd gotten the Holy Spirit also, and so that's the church I went to. Of course, I was confirmed Lutheran. and became an altar boy, and I sung in the choir, and went through catechism, all that happy horse stuff. And as a kid, you know, growing up, I was a big guy. I mean, I was the biggest kid in my neighborhood, you know. But I was a fighter, you know. I just wasn't one of these rolling around kind of mud kind of guys. So on Monday morning, the kids would chase me to school and roll me around in mud, take my lunch money. And after school, they rolled running home and rolled me around in mud some more. And, I, of course, my uncle, he was, couldn't understand this. He's like, you know, what's what's the deal here? So he was going to teach me how to fight. So I'd get beat up on the way to school, get beat up coming home, get beat up at home. So on Sundays, when I was singing in the choir, I'd go out and I'd steal from the ladies. They used to keep their purses out by the bathroom, and I'd go out and borrow a little money from them, and, and I'd meet the kids on Monday morning, I'd buy them candy bars and, 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 and soda pops, and they wouldn't beat the crap out of me every day. Well, right? that was my life into the... The, the 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 fantasy world of, of make-believe i don't know about anybody else here but all my life i lived into this this world that when i was a kid growing up they used to i mean they i mean they, they would sent me to this you know to the school counselor you know because i was one of those daydreaming kind of guys you know i'd come in the classroom and i'd sit there for for the whole hour and just look you know i'm looking out somewhere and the teacher could just just about walk up on me and hit me upside the head before she'd get my attention and she used to tell my aunt and uncle that something's wrong with this kid you know i mean i mean he just goes these places and i would i, I mean i would i mean i was going i mean i was the rifleman, man and you know and, and uh you know i was uh i spy and you know i mean you name it i was james bond helping him uh, uh find dr no and i mean i would go all these places you know and and then, and, and my favorite cowboy of all time was 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 uh, Clint Walker. If any of you remember old Clint Walker from Cheyenne, and I used to, think, and you know, and I used to imagine myself. Having the same kind of horse that Clint had, and if you remember, he was the big, biggest man I ever seen. But this guy would sit on this horse, and it looked like his feet would be dragging the ground. I mean, that's how big he was. And I just, I just, I, I mean, that was my guy. So I was, I was always somewhere with Clint, me and him. And as a kid growing up, that became my reality. I just created these worlds within myself. Um, as a kid growing up, like I said, um, um, I, of course, I learned how to lie and steal in the, in the Lutheran church and. And eventually you know this is the early 60s um um this is back in the days and we were hippies and and this was before uh uh, uh jim's time when they were big knee beatniks but i was hippies you know we were hippies running around throwing flowers and protest- protesting the vietnam war and i was a tender age of 12 and 13 right and so i remember i said you know i had enough of this i decided to leave home and, and i left home at the age of 12 13 years old and I went off in the Haight-Ashbury looking, you know, for free love. And of course I found free food, free penicillin, you know, and all that happy horse stuff. And and I tripped around the Haight-Ashbury in the early 60s, uh, became a flower child, grew myself a great big old afro, and had all kind of living things in it, and got me a great big peace sign, and and I had one of those Wild Bill Hickok coats, you know, and had bells all over it, and blue jeans and sandals, you know. And I tripped around the bird for the time I was 13 years old until I was sixteen as a runaway. Now, the first thing I ever got stoned on was Thunderbird wine. Now, is there any good wine? Yeah, T-bird drinkers in here. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah, hey, babe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's a there's a if I ever seen one. And uh, I'm a T-bird drinker, you know. I mean I I mean that's what I grew up on. And 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 my first high was and i and i and i didn't know i drank for a reason until i came to the rooms of alcoholics anonymous and i believed that if this was a reason to drink it worked for me and the reason was is that this rhino saw me he said you look cold he says we're going to get you something to warm you up and so we he introduced me to fine honor panhandling we went to got, got what we needed to go to the to the, the supermarket and, and and get our our, our fifths of tea bird, and uh, we went to the went to the hill, hill and you know how T bird sounds when you twist that old top off of it, crack it, crack crack I go and uh you know, and you get the top off of it and you take your first big, big gulp, and I uh, and I tell you, it just it just it just it just feels good in the mouth and starts burning in the chest and blowing it up in the belly. And I like that feeling, man, and I got warm and I like that feeling. I love T bird and I mean and, mainly because it was easy to steal. If you remember back in the old days, and I don't know why they used to keep the good stuff on the bottom of, you know, the shelf where you could steal it, but anyway, that's the stuff I used to could steal with oil. But I like T-Bird, and I like drinking, and, I, and, and the bottom line is, I don't know about anybody else in here, once I inquired a taste for it, I liked it. I mean, I drink it. And then, Now, I did some drugs, a little bit of drugs, and smoked a little Medjahooji, and hate some LSD to get my head right, but the bottom line is I like falling down, passed out, puking straight up in the air, drunk. And that's how I drink. And I don't know any other way to drink. And uh, and I drink to something gave out, and It was always me. And I was drinking like that at the age of 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. I got arrested as a runaway at the tender age of uh, 16. And I found myself in our institutions. Now, I started, I actually started venturing into the institutions when I was 10 years old. I began to start running away and doing this when I was 10 years old. But I finally made it to youth authority when I was 16. And I came in, like I said, let me, by the time I was 16, I was a youth authority. By the time I was 18, I was hospitalized for alcoholism. By the time I was 21, I was uh, on the bus to San Clinton. Now, and it's not what I choose, but that's the way I went. Like I said, by the time I got to the youth authority at the tender age of 16, I'd been on the streets for a while, and violence became a way of life for me. I I, I hit you. It's just that simple. Uh, You can talk about my mother, talk about my father, call me all the names you want. Don't touch me, because I'll hit you. And so, you know, I I, I found myself uh, uh, accumulating some scars and leaving some. So I I went to uh, the penitentiary with a series of assaults because I would just, I'd go in the bars, or I'd it didn't matter, and I and just tear up things. So they locked me up, and they sent me to Vacaville uh, in, in 1975, and I ended up in Vacaville at the tender age of 21. And uh, and like I said, uh, uh, it was like two months after my 21st birthday that I ended up in Vacaville. And it wasn't what I decided that I wanted to do for a, a life of career, but there I was walking. If there's any old old timers in here, remember the, the old cement walkway. Or the cement highway they called Backerville. you know I mean I I, I mean I, I that's what I did for six months and then what's what they call the introduction center into the institution I remember when I got to this institution and, and like I said I lived into this fantasy world and I remember there was this counselor there you know we talk about the Eskimos in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous we never know where they appear with this, with with this, you know, like the Saint Bernard with the with the big tank uh, around his neck, you know, uh, uh, bringing the 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 drink to the starving, the di- you know, the the man was dying of thirst, you know. And she was one of my first Eskimos that I that I will never forget. But I didn't realize until later on what a seed she planted in my head. But there, I remember we you go into this counselor, and if you've been in institutions, you know, you go in and. And I'm a new timer. I'm a first timer, and and, uh, uh, and I'm sitting and I'm looking, and she's young, and and uh, I'm young, and and, uh, and she asked me, you know, about my crime. You know, what'd you do? And, of course, you must understand that 99% of us during time didn't do our crimes, you know. We were just, you know, victims of circumstances. And, of course, you know, I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and those bastards, they jumped me, you know. And, uh, I, you know, the bottom line is that I didn't do this. I mean, God, you got to understand, you know. I mean, I was just in the wrong place, and whoop and, da and whoop de whoop and on and on and on. And after about 20 minutes of listening to me go on this whole genre about insanity she just screamed at me she said I mean she I remember her using these exact words she said shut the fuck up (laughs) I mean she was just I mean she was pissed and she's looking at me and she says what is she says she she said I've never seen anybody so bound on we were so lost in this this thing about believing what you were believing and thinking everybody else believed it you know you're the only idiot sitting in the courtroom that knew you was lying and didn't know that everybody else knew you were lying that was my reality that's how i lived of course that didn't affect me at the time i just basically just stood there and stared at her and from that point on i did i shut up and i never talked to anybody again when it came to counselors and of course i was sent to quentin and, uh, and eventually, I was uh, I was at Quentin and locked down there. In the beginning, it was locked down. And eventually, I had to go through these anger modification programs, which I didn't do well in. Um, so they decided they were going to send me down to California Men's Colony, where they had this program called CADAX And it was for a so-called violent prisoner. Because I was the kind of guy, I didn't like convicts. I didn't like cops. We played chess all day. You take my queen, I hit you. So they locked me up. That was the reality. Uh, I was told that I was antisocial in the penitentiary. Uh, I had a lieutenant scream at me and said, You were one of the worst kinds I've ever seen because you, are, you, are, you can't even exist here. And, and, and I just basically flipped him off, and they, he just screamed, Lock this asshole up. So I spent a lot of my time locked up by myself because I just, I just, I just didn't care. I had accepted the fact that I was going to live and die in the joint, there was no confusion for me. So I went to, I got involved, and and, and I was locked down again. Of course, I was the kind of guy It was a fight jump off, whether it was my fight, your fight, I jumped in. And I had this old convict. I got to Alcoholics Anonymous through a convict. I didn't know nothing about AA until Bear. Bear was a black convict, and Bear had been down about 20 years. And Bear was a lifer. And Bear had been sober at this time about 10 years in the program of AA. Of course, I didn't know this at the time. I was about 22 years old, 23. And barricaded myself. Now, see, I was only supposed to do two years, see, but I had a problem, so I stayed six. Um, I was enjoying my, my, uh, my rest. And um, I was sitting under the old law, if there's any old lawers in here that remember they had the, before they had the SB 42 rule, where it was a, a determinant uh, sentence, I was sitting on what they call the indeterminate sentence. So I'm a B number. Uh, if there's any B numbers in here or anybody that relates to that. So, uh, uh, so I was sitting under the old law, where you did one-a-life, 2 life 3 life 4 life five-a-life, and so on and so on, until they changed the law in 1978. But anyway, um, um, I was supposed to only do a little over two years, and I kept getting these uh, violent chronicles, so they kept adding time to me. So like I said, Bear came to my cell, and I was locked up, and they called me Biggum in the joint, and Bear came to my cell and he said, you know, he says, Bigum. he says, there's a cop down the hall who asking me to come talk to you. He says, I heard you went to the board and they told you to program. He says, son, I want to tell you something about the tough guys. He says, uh, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, Al Capone, he said, them boys are dead, man. He said, they up in Boot Hill. He says, you go look out your tin little mirror over there, window over there and with a screen on it. And he said, you see all the tough guys walking in the yard, son? He said, they're just like you, they're waiting to die. He said, but every Friday night, this penitentiary has an AA meeting in the visiting room. He says, the sign-up guy for your tier is right next door. He says, all you got to do is put your name on the list and come to the meeting. So I figured, what do I know, you know? You know, Barrett said it might be a good idea for me. I didn't know nothing about AA. I never tasted coffee till I got to AA. So Barrett said, come to these meetings. So I went to the meeting. And I went to the meeting for two years in this institution, and I didn't miss a one. And like I said, I, I, they would send me to psychiatrists, and I just didn't talk. I would piss the psychiatrists off because I just didn't talk. I would sit there and stare at them for the 30 minutes, and they kicked kick me out of their office. But I went to the meetings. Like I said, you know, I want to I talk a little bit about California Men's Colony. California Men's Colony is in San Luis Obispo. And, uh, and it is the, let me now, please understand, it is not the first, but it is the oldest, <clears throat> it is the oldest and largest established prison group in the world. Now, California Men's Colony uh, 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 was first started in 1968. The meeting started there in 1968, um, um, and, and it started with about five or ten guys. The meeting today has 300 members. That's how big this group is, and they are actually a recognized AA group. Um, when I was going, when I got into CMC, and I, and I was going to this group, um, like I said, I was not an alcoholic. And I went to the meetings because the bear said it might be a good idea for me. So I went, because he had clout, and he represented something among the black convicts. So if he said it was OK, I went. And I went to the meetings, and I sat there for two years. And I watched all you people come in off the streets of Alcoholics Anonymous and talk about your new way of life. And I thought, so what? You know? And what you said to me, and I knew you were talking to me, because I heard these words. The bottom line was this. If you like what you got, keep it. If you feel good about yourself every morning when you get up and you like what you see when you look in your little tin mirror and what looks back at you, keep it. And if you're excited about how you're going to spend your day and who you're going to spend your day with and how you're going to spend your day, keep it. And when you come back and you like how it sounds when they clang that sail shed and you've had a great day and all this camaraderie and whoop, whoop, to whoop and all this love and joy, you knock yourself out and you just hang on to it. And when you crawl up in your bunk at night, if you've had such a serene and happy existence, and this works for you, then you just keep coming back. But if you ever find yourself looking in that chair mirror at something that gives you no reprieve, then Alcoholics Anonymous might work for you. It works for me. Now, I don't know nothing about nothing. I just know that for the first time in my life, somebody said something that made sense to me. Now, I don't know where it came from or why. But you kept coming in, and you kept coming in. And I didn't understand. I figured you guys were holy rollers, because all of a sudden, somebody said something about God. And that's when you lost me. You see, I come from a place where God was just totally, totally boom, 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 the walls went up. But I kept going. I uh, want to talk a little bit more about CMC. Um, I uh, I, uh, have a panel that i take in there. Um, well, actually, I'm actually the coordinator for all the panels that go on that penitentiary now. Um, the lady that was doing it, Kathy Bethel, was one of my dearest friends, um, was a counselor when I came in. She just retired uh, September of last year as assistant warden of that institution, and she had just started her apprenticeship when I started going to the meetings uh, in, that, in that institution. She had only been out of college for about two years, and that was in 1977, and Kathy Bethel uh, two years before that the guys had come and asked her because they were afraid they were going to lose their meeting because they didn't have a counselor uh, To come in and keep that meeting going so she volunteered her time and since 19 for 1975 Through last year uh, Kathy was 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 the lady and, and the, she was a normie. She was not an alcoholic and she worked for the institution She's probably uh, let me put it this way. She's probably one of the only one of the few people that New York our Central office has ever recognized as as a as a as, as a non-member of AA who was devoted un- undoubtedly service to her. We, we ended up, uh, New York ended up uh, about two years ago when they heard she was going to retire, uh, sent a big plaque to her and, and, and thank her for her service to Alcoholics Anonymous. But Kathy, when I got there, was just a regular old counselor. She was just learning her trade. And uh, like I said today, she's one of my closest friends. And she retired last year, and she asked me to take over that responsibility, which is a great honor for me. I've been taking panels into that institution now for 22 years, and California Men's Colony is my home group, you know. There are guys in there. Now, California Men's Colony has, like I said, about 300 members. Eighty percent of those guys are lifers. So there are guys in there that I did time with, and there are guys in there that I have buried that I did time with. And I want to talk about one of those guys. His name is Zach. And when I got to the institution at CMC in, in, in 1977, 76, um you know uh zach was a white convict he was a lifer and zach died uh, last month or last last uh, october Uh, but anyway he died with 37 years behind the walls but zach uh and i uh like i said zach came to me because i was locked down and and he said to me you know when you get out he says you seem like you like to fight he says on saturday nights we have boxing in the gym he says, you know, they have a big fight. He says, uh, why do you come out? I'll teach you how to fight. We'll put you in the ring. Of course, I never got to the ring. But Zach used to shadow box me and talk to me and shadow box me and talk to me and run and talk. And what he said to me, he was 36 years old at the time, 35 when I met him. And he said to me, he says, you know, Bigham, he says, one of these days you're going to get a date, and they're going to let you out of this institution. What are you going to do? What do you know? And he says, he says, you know, there's a trade that you can learn. He says, it's called water treatment. He says, it's in a steam plant. And he says, it's working with steam bol- with steam boilers. He says, there's only two places in the whole world you can learn this trade. He says, one is the Navy, and guess what? You're in the other place. And he said, he said, this institution has a steam plant. And he says, it's for our laundry. And he says, all you got to do, he says, is be willing to, 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 to learn something new. He said, I ain't never getting out of here. He says, I'm 35 years old. And he says, if you reach 35 years old and you're still in here doing what I'm doing, the chances are you ain't never gonna make it either. But there's hope for you. And he says, all you gotta do is be willing to take a risk. And he says, it's not gonna pay you big money, but it'll pay you a good living. So I thought, well, what the hell? I couldn't read, so Zach decided to teach me how to read. And he taught me well, how to read uh, from the. Uh, there's a book, uh, if any of you are familiar with it, called Tell Stories: War and Peace. Now, that book's about yay big. If you can't read, it's actually like yay big. And, uh, and, uh, and I, remember, I remember him giving me this book and saying, here, you got a problem? Come see me. Now, if you've ever seen Post Stories War and Peace, I had a problem on the very first page, right? And so I remember going to him and saying, what is that? And he is saying, by well, golly, here's Baxter's Dictionary. If you have a problem with that, come and see me. And that's how I learned to read. So Zach pulled some strings and got me my job at the steam plant. I went to work out there, and, and of course, you know, um, 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 and of course that's where I learned the trade that I have today. But I remember I was, this is 1974, 1994, 95. I'm at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at the institution of uh, the San, San Luis Obispo on my panel. And I'm standing there talking with the guy that I went to my first meeting with. His name is Charlie Cougar. And Charlie's been down now 37 years, gone on 38 years. He's been locked up. He's doing life lot about the possibility. And him and I went to our first AA meeting together. And I remember me and Charlie, we sat next to each other, and we're standing there in 1995, and we're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, this new life that we have. And all of a sudden this old guy walked up to me because it was in 1978-77 that they separated me and sent me to another part of the institution because if you to get the good jobs in the institution you had to know conflict and, and and that's how you work. You work through a network. And so they moved me to another institution, another part of the institution so I could go learn this trade that I have. And of course you know um, I didn't see Zach again until 1995. So I'm standing in this meeting, and this old convict walks up to me, and he says, Don, I know you. And I says, yeah, and Charlie says, of course you do, Zach, it's biggum, I and he reintroduced us to each other. And we held each other, and we cried. And I looked at Zach, and I said, Zach, do you know what I do for a living today? I'm an engineer today for the city of Glendale. I've worked for the city of Glendale for 22 years. They took me out of the when I got out one year after I got out of the institution. They took a risk. I was the first ex-convict of my type that they've ever hired. And they put me through college, six years of college, and they trained me. And I said, it had to do with my, my, my experience with water treatment. They let me take a test, I passed it, and I work for them today. And I held Zach, and I said, Zach is, is a direct result of you, Zach. And wherever I go, you will always live, because the bottom line is, is that my life today is a, direct, is, is, is a result of his input. He is one of my Eskimos. <clears throat> Zach died uh, September, October last year, about stomach cancer, <clears throat> and we, you know, I was allowed to um, participate in that ceremony. Um, <clears throat> so these are the gifts that I have today. My sobriety is my way of life. There isn't anything out there, you or anybody else, that even can even come near of making it any different for me. I got free. They let me walk out of that institution into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was you who came and got me. There was a man by the name of uh, Don L who came and picked me up on the day I got out and Don is still one of my dearest friends and and Jim, you know, and he came and picked me up. He came and he said he would come and get me and he came and got me. And he brought me to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and he brought me to your meetings, you know. And the bottom line is, is that everything that I have today is I truly believe is a gift. You see, I didn't get sober because I had a problem. I got sober because it was suggested that it might be a good idea for me. I drank and used all the time that I went to those meetings in the institutions. We had good drugs and we had very great, great homemade booze. That's the bottom line. And I didn't get sober until 1979, three months before, I, four months before I was able, was, uh, actually six months before, I walked out of the institutions to the streets of AA. And please understand, It's not something that that I I thought was was, was anything I wanted to to do, you know? There were two things I heard in that institution. The first one is that you do it one day at a time. And I've always lived one day at a time. I don't know about anybody else here. If you come from where I come from, you live one day at a time. I could do that shit standing on my head. The second thing they said is that you, you, you fake it till you make it. I did that all my life. I lied about who I was, what I was, where I came from, and what I was about. You know? And it took me a long time of having to walk through the different things that I had to walk through in the, in, on the streets of Alcoholics Anonymous for these things to change. I truly believe in the 12 steps and I truly believe in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I truly believe that the 12 steps and the 12 traditions and the 12 concept of service are the principles, the 36 principles that you've given me to, 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 to govern my life by. And I don't do it perfectly, and I will probably never do it perfectly, and I hope that I never, ever know what it is like to do it perfectly. Because the bottom line is this, is that on a daily basis, I get to learn new things about how to interact with people. I never knew how to interact with people. I come from a place where I didn't know nothing about nothing of being about friends. And Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to be a member of a family. He's taught me how to, how to, how to be a friend, how to be a father. And I'm not, sometimes I'm not that good of a father, but I'm learning, you know, on a daily basis. He's taught me how to be a damn good employee, and how to be to be, to be dependable, and to be consistent. I've never done those things. And it's been through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've been given these principles. And it's about continuing one day at a time to put one foot in front of the other. And the thing that I like the most is the sixth step, because the sixth step for me is about change. And what it says there is that change. used to think that, that I was the kind of person that I would, I mean, my God, I would apologize over and over and over. And over. Oh, man, I'm so proud of you. I mean, you know? And the minute you leave the room, I'm doing it again. And the sixth step said to me that today I'm a sober member, that once I become aware of a certain character defect, that all of a sudden I go to seven and I ask God to remove it, and and something should happen for me. And the change is, is that it stops. That behavior stops. I don't have to repeat it again. I don't have to do it again. I don't have to come back and say, I'm sorry. I get to move on to the next thing. And that's the gift of the program for me. One of the other things is a fifth step. I never understood the process of forgiveness until I had done the fifth step. And I had to do the fifth step again when I was 20 years sober before I could understand the concept of forgiveness that it talks about in the fifth step. It says that we continue to compile. We start to start a list of people we are willing to forgive. It says that in the fifth step. But the bottom line is there's a other. there's one person that I never, ever placed in that list. It was myself. It took me 20 years to finally understand that you can't transmit something you ain't got. And if you haven't forgiven yourself, and if you haven't done certain things to better your feelings and your thinking and your attitudes, then what are you trying to give away? Nothing. And I'm tired of having to live in that process, and that's how I've lived for a long, long time. And I had to go back and practice forgiveness of Michael, because I don't deserve it. If you come from where I come from, I don't deserve it. The 10th step and the 11th step are about forgiveness. You want to know what forgiveness was about me? You son of a bitches, I, you owe me. That was the 10th step and 11th step for me. And it was my justifiable re, uh, 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 resentments that I found determined to make you know that you are the reason why. And I seem to forget that when I drink and use, something happened. When I drink and use, something happened. Somebody got to pick up the price tag. And when I came out of my so-called blackout, somebody was quick to remind me, "You son of a bitch! Look what you did!" Oh, now I don't know i knew what i did i may not remember but i knew the minute i was coherent enough to look at your eyes and and hear your voice that i had done something and by the grace of god for me to be at the 10th and the ninth step talking about you being forgiven i was totally misarrayed because that's not what that step said for me it says that i go and i give forgiveness as i am being forgiven and that's the gift that's the gift more than anything else I go and I ask for it, and I give it. And I don't show up with any intentions other than to be of service to God and to another human being to the best of my ability and and screw the results. Because the bottom line is that I'm not going to show up and hurt somebody that doesn't need to be hurt by my presence one more time. And I get to make my amends through my living process on a daily basis. And that's what I do today. I am so grateful for this program. I am so grateful for you...
2: All right, we're going to turn it over to step two, to part two. Thank you so much for listening in. It's awesome, awesome. This is tape. This is the kind of tape we listen to over and over and take notes, folks. Take notes. Wise minds give instructions to wise minds. Here we go. Thank you. one day
0: at a time and you go to these silly little meetings and you work on your shitty attitude your life may get better and i said oh oh so what but i kept coming back i want to say this to the new person in the 12th step it says there if you ever get a chance you know uh, the 11th step and let me talk about the 11th step Uh, let me talk about the 10th step first I used to think that the tenth step for me, now, this is, where, now I don't, this is what works for me. I don't know what works for you, but this is what works for me today. I used to think that the tenth step was about a cat of nine tails, you know, the old priests, they go, on the, they go on, they kneel, and they go and they kneel and they take the cat of nine tails and they do the pentance you know, and, the, and the, a lot of religions do that, you know, they do the pentance, And I used to think that's what the tenth step was about for me. And then I had to reread it one more time. And it says there, you know, that we take a spot moral inventory. And we, we, we're, we're, we're like a business, a business that doesn't take a look at the goods that are spoiled and the goods that are good isn't a very good business. And all of a sudden I realized for myself that the 10 step was not about Michael doing things. It was about Michael for the first time seeing how far down the road he's come, not how far down the road he's gone you know, but the, uh, oh, he has to go. You know, the bottom line is that I know for me more than anything else is that I've come to understand that through the 10 step, that when I make a mistake, when I, when I offend somebody, that I can't wait two weeks. I can't wait a month. I gotta either do what I need to do, go find my sponsor, and make the amends as soon as I possibly can, and move on. And that from that, I get to learn something new. I get to learn how to be dependable and consistent. You know, there are things that I hear in the rooms of alcoholics anonymous that drives me nuts. One of them is think, think, think that's turned upside down. That's not what that's about. Okay, yeah, your thinking's upside down, but if you be an alcoholic like me, my thinking's always been upside down. But it's not because I hadn't, didn't have the ability to think, it's because I didn't have the ability to think think my thoughts through. If it came into my head, it was an action. I never took the time to just step back and stop. And think, think, think means to think, think, think it through. I never did that. I never did that. I took a drink, or I thought I thought, it was done. It was over. Then I thought about it afterwards. The other one is, is, is keep it simple, stupid. If you ever walk to me and say, stupid, I'm going to punch your lights out. Because where I come from, that's a derogatory term, and it's an insult. And I've been insulted with that word all my life. I can go back as far as I can remember when I used to daydream as a kid and I was then able to say, is he stupid? And I come to the rooms of alcoholics anonymous to continue to have you call me stupid? I don't think so. The bottom line, it just keep it simple. It means to easy does it. Take your time. Don't take the the, the the little the little bitty things and make them into big old gigantic nightmares. You don't have to do that today. And you're not stupid. You're just a human being learning new behaviors. And sometimes you take those behaviors to the extreme. And all it's saying to you is just easy does it. Take your time. Keep it simple. One day at a time, one foot from the other. And by the grace of God, if you're new here and somebody calls you stupid, punch them. <laughs> <laughs> by because you're not stupid. And you don't have to live with that kind of title today. You are, you, are, you, are, you are an alcoholic who has found a positive way of living, and you should be reminded of that on a daily basis. The 11th step, I had a problem with God, a major problem with God. But the 11th step gave me a newfound identity. It says there in the 11th step, it says that through the practice of prayer meditation, we find peace of mind. Now, I don't know about anybody else in this room. I spent my whole life looking for peace of mind. And it's not from you. It's with self. I wanted so hard to be at peace with myself, and I never was. And it says that in the 10th step, that through these practices, that you will be given a gift called peace of mind. And from that gift, you are given the ultimate example of life. And it's called a a, 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 a spiritual maturity. It's called called, um, 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 being mature emotionally and mentally. It's called emotional maturity is what it says in the book. It says emotional maturity. You are given emotional maturity. You get to be an adult. Yeah. The 12 step, if you ever get a chance to read the 12 step in the 12 and 12, the first two pages and the last two pages are probably the most powerful pages, I don't know for you, but they were for me that I've ever read. What they say there is this, that our program is based upon, if you are now at the 12 step, you should have been given a spiritual awakening. You see, I used to think that the white light that Bill talked about was all of a sudden for the first time in his life, he got this, 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 this angel appeared to him and, and struck him sober and he was sent on catapulted into the, the, the fifth dimension. And that's not what I understand Bill meant. What Bill was trying to say and that he browbeat everybody by, he was, Bill was not a very good uh, a writer and he wrote how he talked. And what he was saying was at that one point of his life he had had a spiritual experience and he didn't know when that's he, he didn't know he was having it but he was having it and it happened when abby showed up to his home and brought him the concept of you must give it away to keep it and he didn't know that that was the beginning of his spiritual experience until he had traveled through whatever he needed to get to that he was all of a sudden in this hospital and all of a sudden the white light of awakening It was the light of awakening that came to him. All of a sudden, he was awakening to a new dimension and a new way of life. That's what he's talking about. And I truly believe that to be a reality for me because it says that in the 12th step. It says that we've had a a spiritual awakening. And it is, to those of you new, you cannot have awakening until you've had the experience. The awakening is the result and the awareness of an experience. It says there that from this, that we go and we practice love, patience, and tolerance. We try to give it away. We remember that we're only human beings and that our, I mean, that our, our, our character defects that we bring into these programs can be of, of, can be of service and value to another human being. If we are willing to do the right thing. And that is what it's all about. Being willing to stay sober and do the right thing. And it says that. And that by this we go and we give it away to keep it. We go and we share the good news. And the good news is how you had your spiritual awakening. The good news is that you found a way that life that works for you. The good news is that you don't have to drink one day at a time. And the really good news is this, newcomer, you don't ever have to do it alone again. Never. For the first time in your life, you get to do it with somebody, and you get to hold us, you get to hold our hands to the fire, and you get to make us say, yes, 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 yes. We'll keep coming back. We'll keep coming back for you. If you're new here, don't drink. Go to meetings. Become willing to work on your shitty attitudes and your actions, and I promise you, your life gets better. Thanks. Thanks,
1: right, give Mike.
0: Another hand. Uh, my name is Mike, and I am an alcoholic. Uh, I tell you, he, he grows up well. <laughs> uh, um, I want to thank uh, Steve and Cindy for for well, Cindy. Cindy's the one that crowds that got me here uh, to come and be a part of your group. Um, I haven't been up here at Raptors in a long, long time. And of course, Jimmy and I, we go back a long, long way uh, when I was new. And uh, we used to, him and I, we were, we were running partners with a group of, from the Gong Show of Don R and Crazy Horse and all those guys. And, um, and you know, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, uh, every one of these people have always been about service. You know, they've always been about you got to give it away to keep it and you're willing to go to any lengths to, to, to do that. And I remember, you know, for me, going to any lengths uh, um, represented a lot of things, but uh, when, I got out, when I got out of, I'm, a, I'm an ex-con, um, and, uh, um, and uh, when I got out of the institutions um, and I started coming to the Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, getting involved in going to any lengths, was not something that I was looking forward to. But these people that Jimmy and I ran around with, they were really about service. And and they were going everywhere. And they used to just make us get in the car and go, you know, and whether you wanted to go or not, you got in the car and you went. And uh, and it you know, I mean it was it was one of those things where they call you at seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and ask you what are you doing and you say I'm sleeping. They say, Well, be downstairs in an hour, we'll be by to pick you up, where are you going, none of your business. Just show up, you know. And that's that's the kind of program I, sobriety, that I grew up with. Um, uh, Institutions and hospitals. (laughs) Steve and I, bless (laughs) his heart. You know, it it is an honor, it is an honor to have someone say to me that you are, you know, that I am a member, uh, like a member of their family and have been for a long, long time. and you know that that's that's an honor for me today. You know because that has never ever been true before. Um, um, if you come from where I come from, um, people weren't happy to see me show up. Period. And uh, and and uh, where I was, they were hoping that they would keep me there. Um, but uh, but these are things are gifts that we get in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know we go we we. we you, 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 you go through, let me put it this way, Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life that I'm so grateful for having today. It is a program that has worked for me and it has brought me a way of living that I never thought possible ever in my life. You know? And I have, I have, I've had different other ways of living life and this was not what I conceived to be uh, uh, what I thought it was going to be. And, and you know, I have a damn good life today. You know, uh, November I'll celebrate 25 years of sobriety and it's been one day at a time, just one day at a time. And for that, I'm forever grateful. Um, I don't know how much, how much time do I have up here? 1050. Ten, oh, 1050. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. Um, let's see.
1: <laughs>
0: let's see. Uh, They say we share what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I want to say to those of you that are new here in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, please understand that anything I say from this podium is my own personal experiences. You know, most of the things that I'm aware of today um, um, are things that I became uh, uh, enlightened to in my sobriety. Um, I probably was aware of them, but I, I was not coherent to that fact. And it took many years of being sober to have things slowly revealed to me that that became a reality in my life um um, so please understand this is my experience with my sobriety and with the program of alcoholics anonymous i truly believe in the big book i believe that the big book is is probably the one of the greatest books i've ever read and and i read it often um I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to get sober. I didn't know I had a problem until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, uh, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, I come from a a family of 13 children, and my parents, they didn't didn't have a TV, so, um, um, you know, they had a lot of children. And, uh, uh, you know, and uh, I had a younger sister who was uh, a few years younger than me and when I was five years old, Uh, Her and I were brought uh, to California to be raised by my great-aunt, who was uh, a full-blooded Cherokee Indian, and she was my my father's, uh, uh, my grandmother on my father's side's sister. And my father's half uh, half Irish and half Cherokee Indian. If you're confused, my mother's black, and, um, and, and so I grew up in a very confused, crazy household. And like I said, my aunt uh, uh, raised me and my, my younger sister and we were brought to California by, my, by her and her husband who was uh, from Birmingham, Alabama, and they were, he was black. And, uh, and uh, they, were, they were black Baptists, they were Southern black Baptists, and they were dying in the world, I mean Orthodox Southern black Baptists. And they, they dressed a certain way, they acted a certain way, they didn't smoke, they didn't curse, they didn't drink. You went to church three times a week in our house, and on Sunday you went to church all day. And that's the home I grew up in. And uh, the house I grew up in, like I said, uh, uh, you woke up in the morning hearing Mahala Jackson and went to bed to listen to Tex Ritter. Now, I don't understand what the kind of what the kind of diction was, but that's, that's the house I grew up in. And like I said, you know, um, I found myself, uh, like I said, as a kid growing up, I didn't, you know, religion was a hard thing for me. And religion was hard for me mainly because it was always my parents, or my aunt and uncle, uh, uh, attitude about what i was doing to determine on what side of god i was and it was always based on my behavior and that's all i knew and i knew that god was a very very uh, a contradictory thing for me because he represented so many different things he represented love happiness death life uh, forgiveness uh, uh, damnation and these were all based on on what i was doing and what my aunt and uncle determined was god's intent what's god's view on it was and, and we went to church, and I hated going to church. I hated church more than anything else because it was an all-day affair. And when you're a kid, you know, at my age, and like, like I said, we went to, they were black Baptists, and probably some of you have never been in a black Baptist church, but uh, uh, they, they had this thing about the Holy Spirit. So they worked really hard on Sundays to get it, see. And as a kid growing up, that was a terrifying experience for me because I mean, you know, when you went to church and you're five, six years old, seven years old, and somebody's trying to get the Holy Spirit, usually she's about three hundred pounds. It's terrifying, you know. And uh, and uh, I mean, it used to scare me to death. I mean, my eyes used to get about yay big, man. I mean i mean and i I told my aunt i said beat me whatever you want i'm not going to church right so i got beat a lot and i went to church and uh as time went on my aunt says we can't keep killing this kid you went to church in our home so she looked around for a church and of course she found this lutheran church and uh and uh, they're missouri lutheran i don't know if there's any good missouri lutherans in here and you don't get any more orthodox in missouri lutheran and and she liked that church and uh it was holy they'd gotten the holy spirit also and so that's the church I went to. Of course, I was confirmed Lutheran and became an altar boy. And I sung in the choir and went through catechism, all that happy horse stuff. And as a kid, you know, growing up, I was a big guy. I mean, I was the biggest kid in my neighborhood, you know. But I was a fighter, you know. I just wasn't one of these rolling around kind of mud kind of guys. So on Monday morning, the kids would chase me to school and roll me around in mud, take my lunch money. And after school, they rolled running home and rolled me around the mud some more. And I, of course, my uncle—he was couldn't understand this. He's like, you know, what's what's the deal here? So he was going to teach me how to fight. So I get beat up on the way to school, get beat up coming home, get beat up at home. So on Sundays, when I was singing in the choir, I'd go out and I'd steal from the ladies. They just keep their purses out by the bathroom, and I'd go out and borrow a little money from them. And, and I'd meet the kids on Monday morning. I'd buy them candy bars and and, and, and soda sort of pops, and they would beat the crap out of me every day. Well, again, that was my life into the. The, the 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 fantasy world of, of make-believe i don't know about anybody else here but all my life i lived into this this world that when i was a kid growing up they used to i mean they i mean they, they would sent me to this you know to the school counselor you know because i was one of those daydreaming kind of guys you know i'd come in the classroom and i'd sit there for for the whole hour and just look you know i'm looking out somewhere and the teacher could just just about walk up on me and hit me upside the head before she'd get my attention and she used to tell my aunt and uncle that something's wrong with this kid you know i mean i mean he just goes these places and i would i i mean i would i mean i was going i mean i was the rifleman and you know and, and uh you know i was uh i an spy and you know i mean you name it i was james bond helping him uh, uh, find dr no and i mean i would go all these places you know, and. And then and, and my favorite cowboy of all time was 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 uh, Clint Walker. If any of you remember old Clint Walker from Cheyenne. And I used to play, and, you know, and I used to imagine myself Having the same kind of horse that Clint had, and if you remember, he was the big, biggest man I ever seen. But this guy would sit on this horse, and it looked like his feet would be dragging the ground. I mean, that's how big he was. And I just, I just, I, I mean, that was my guy. So I was, I was always somewhere with Clint, me and him. And as a kid growing up, that became my reality. I just created these worlds within myself. Um, as a kid growing up, like I said, um, um, I of course I learned how to lie and steal in the, in the Lutheran church and. And eventually you know this the early 60s um, um this is back in the days and we were hippies and and this was before uh uh, uh jim's time when they were big knee beatniks but i was hippies you know we were hippies running around throwing flowers and protesting the vietnam war and i was a tender age of 12 and 13 right and so i remember i said you know i had enough of this i decided to leave home and, and i left home at the age of 12 13 years old and I went off in the Haight-Ashbury looking, you know, for free love. And, of course, I found free food, free penicillin, you know, and all that happy horse stuff. And and I tripped around the Haight-Ashbury in the early 60s, uh, became a flower child, grew myself a great big old afro, and had all kind of living things in it, and got me a great big peace sign, and and I had one of those Wild Bill Hickok coats, you know, and had bells all over it, and blue jeans and sandals, you know. And I tripped around the haight for the time I was 13 years old till I was 16 as a runaway. Now, the first thing I ever got stoned on was Thunderbird wine. Now, is there any good wine, t teabird drinkers in here? Yeah, what's the word? Yeah, hey, babe. Yeah, yeah, well, There's a T-Bird if I ever seen one. I'm a T-Bird drinker, you know? I mean, that's what I grew up on. And my first high was and I and I and I didn't know I drank for a reason until I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I believed that if this was a reason to drink, it worked for me. And the reason was is that this Rhino saw me. He said, "You look cold." He says, "We're going to get you something to warm you up." And so we he introduced me to find our panhandler. We went to got got what we needed to go to the to the, the supermarket, and, and and get our our, our fifths of tea and uh, we went to the went to the hill hippie hill. And, you know how T bird sounds when you twist that old top off of it, crack it, crack crack like a and, uh, you know, and you know, get the top off of it and you take your first big, big gulp and I uh, and I tell you, it just it just it, it just it just feels good in the mouth and starts burning in the chest and blowing it up in the belly. And I like that feeling, man, and I got warm and I like that feeling. I love T bird. And I mean and, Mainly because it was easy to steal. If you remember back in the old days, and I don't know why they used to keep the good stuff on the bottom of, you know, the shelf where you could steal it. But anyway, that's the stuff I used to could steal with oil. But I like T-Bird, and I like drinking. And, I, and, and the bottom line is, I don't know about anybody else in here, once I inquired a taste for it, I liked it. I mean, I drank it. And then, now I did some drugs, a little bit of drugs, and smoked a little Medjahooji, and ate some LSD to get my head right. But the bottom line is I like falling down, passed out, puking straight up in the air drunk. And that's how I drink. And I don't know any other way to drink. And uh, and I drink to something gave out, and it was always me. And I was drinking like that at the age of 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. I got arrested as a runaway at the tender age of uh, 16. And I found myself in and out institutions. Now, I started, I actually started venturing into the institutions when I was 10 years old. I began to start running away and doing this when I was 10 years old. But I finally made it to youth authority when I was 16. And I came in, like I said, let me, by the time I was 16, I was a youth authority. By the time I was 18, I was hospitalized for alcoholism. By the time I was 21, I was uh, on the bus to San Clinton. Now, that's not what I choose, but that's the way I went. Like I said, by the time I got to the youth authority at the tender age of 16, I'd been on the streets for a while, and violence became a way of life for me. I I, I hit you. It's just that simple. Uh, you can talk about my mother, talk about my father, call me all the names you want. Don't touch me, because I'll hit you. And so, you know, I, I, I found myself uh, uh, accumulating some stars and leaving some. So I, I went to uh, the penitentiary with a series of assaults because I would just, I was a... I'd go in the bars or I'd, it didn't matter. And i and I'd just tear up things. So they locked me up. And they sent me to Vacerville uh, in, in 1975. And I ended up in Vacerville at the tender age of 21. And, uh, and like I said, uh, uh, it was like two months after my 21st birthday that I ended up in Vacerville. And it wasn't what I decided that I wanted to do for a, a life of career, but there I was walking. If there's any old timers in here, remember the, the old seaman walkway. Or the cement highway they called Vacaville. You know, I mean, I, I, I mean I, I, that's what I did for six months. And then what, what's what they call the introduction center into the institution. I remember when I got to this institution, and, and like I said, I lived into this fantasy world. And I remember there was this counselor there. You know, we talk about the Eskimos in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. We never know where they appear. With this, with with this, you know, like the Saint Bernard with the with the big tank uh, around his neck, you know, uh, uh, bringing the, the the drink to the starving, the di- you know, the the man was dying of thirst, you know. And she was one of my first Eskimos that I that I will never forget. But I didn't realize until later on what a seed she planted in my head. But there, I remember we you go into this counselor, and if you've been in institutions, you know, you go in, and, and I'm a new timer, I'm a first timer, and and uh, uh, and I'm sitting and I'm looking, and she's young and. And uh I'm young and, and uh and she asked me, you know, about my crime. You know, what'd you do? And of course you must understand that ninety-nine percent of us during time didn't do our crimes. You know we were just you know victims of circumstances and of course you know i just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and those bastards they jumped me you know and uh, i you know the bottom line is that i didn't do this i mean god you got to understand you know i mean i was just in the wrong place and 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 whoop and whoop and on and on and on and after about 20 minutes of listening to me go on this whole genre about insanity she just screamed at me she said i mean she i remember her using these exact words she said shut the fuck up (laughs) i mean she was just i mean she was pissed and she's looking at me and she says what is she says she she said i've never seen anybody so bound on we were so lost in this this thing about believing what you were believing and thinking everybody else believed it you know you're the only idiot sitting in the courtroom that knew you was lying and didn't know that everybody else knew you were lying that was my reality that's how i lived of course that didn't affect me at the time i just basically just stood there and stared at her and from that point on i did i shut up and i never talked to anybody again when it came to counselors and of course i was sent to Quentin. And, uh, and eventually I was uh, I was and locked down there. In the beginning it was locked down. And eventually I had to go through these anger modification programs, which I didn't do well in. Um, so they decided they were going to send me down to California Men's Colony, where they had this program called Cadax, And it was for a so-called violent prisoner. Because I was the kind of guy, I didn't like convicts, I didn't like cops. We played chess all day, you take my queen, I hit you. So they locked me up. That was the reality. Uh, I was told that I was antisocial in the penitentiary. Uh, I had a lieutenant scream at me and said, you were one of the worst kinds I've ever seen because you are, you, are, you can't even exist here. And, and, and I just basically flipped him off and they, he just screamed, lock this asshole up. So I spent a lot of my time locked up by myself because I just, I just, I just didn't care. I had accepted the fact that I was going to live and die in the joint. There was no confusion for me. So I went to, I got involved, and, and, and I was locked down again. Of course, I was the kind of guy It was a fight jump off, whether it was my fight, your fight, I jumped in. And I had this old convict. I got to Alcoholics Anonymous through a convict. I didn't know nothing about AA until Bear. Bear was a black convict, and Bear had been down about 20 years. And Bear was a lifer. And Bear had been sober at this time about 10 years in the program of AA. Of course, I didn't know this at the time. I was about 22 years old, 23. America came to myself. Now see I was only supposed to do two years. see, but I had a problem. so I stayed six. Um, I was enjoying my, my, uh, my rest. and uh, I was sitting under the old law if there's any old hours in here that member had the, before they had the SB42 rule where it was a, a determined uh, sentence. I was sitting on what they called the indeterminate sentence. so I'm a B number. Uh, if there's any B numbers in here or anybody that relates to that. So, uh, uh, so I was sitting under the old law, where you did one of life, two of life, three life, four life, five alive, life, and so on and so on, until they changed the law in 1978. But anyway, um, um, I was supposed to only do a little over two years, and I kept getting these uh, violent chronicles, so they kept adding time to me. So like I said, Bear came to my cell, and I was locked up, and they called me biggum in the joint. And Bear came to my cell, and he said, you know, he says, Bigum. he says, there's a cop down the hall here would ask me to come talk to you. He says, I heard you went to the board, and they told you to program. He says, son, I want to tell you something about the tough guys. He says, uh, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, Al Capone, he said, them boys are dead, man. He said, they up in Boot Hill. He says, you go look out your tin little mirror over there, window over there and with the screen on it, and he said, you see all the tough guys walk, walk in the yard, son? He said, they're just like you, they waiting to die. He said, but every Friday night, this penitentiary has an AA meeting in the visiting room. He says, the sign-up guy for your tier is right next door. He says, all you got to do is put your name on the list and come to the meeting. So I figured, what do I know? You know, you know. Barrett said it might be a good idea for me. I didn't know nothing about AA. I never tasted coffee till I got to AA. So Barrett said, come to these meetings. So I went to the meeting. And I went to the meeting for two years in this institution, and I didn't miss a one. And like I said, I, I, they would send me to psychiatrists, and I just didn't talk. I would piss the psychiatrists off because I just didn't talk. I would sit there and stare at them for the 30 minutes, and they kicked me out of their office. But I went to the meetings. Like I said, you know, I want to I talk a little bit about California Men's Colony. California Men's Colony is in San Luis Obispo. And, uh, and it is the, let me now, please understand, it is not the first, but it is the oldest, <clears throat> it is the oldest and largest established prison group in the world now california men's colony uh, 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 was first started in 1968 the meeting started there in 1968 um, um, and, and it started with about five or ten guys the meeting today has 300 members that's how big this group is and they are actually a recognized a group um, when i was going when i got into cmc and i and i was going to this group um, like i said i was not an alcoholic and I went to the meetings because the bear said it might be a good idea for me. So I went, because he had clout, and he represented something among the black convicts. So if he said it was OK, I went. And I went to the meetings, and I sat there for two years. And I watched all you people come in off the streets of Alcoholics Anonymous and talk about your new way of life. And I thought, so what? You know? And what you said to me, and I knew you were talking to me, because I heard these words. The bottom line was this. If you like what you got, keep it. If you feel good about yourself every morning when you get up and you like what you see when you look in your little tin mirror and what looks back at you, keep it. And if you're excited about how you're going to spend your day and who you're going to spend your day with and how you're going to spend your day, keep it. And when you come back and you like how it sounds when they clang that sail shed and you've had a great day and all this camaraderie and whoop, 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 and all this love and joy, you knock yourself out and you just hang on to it. And when you crawl up in your bunk at night, if you've had such a serene and happy existence and this works for you, then you just keep coming back. But if you ever find yourself looking in that chair mirror at something that gives you no reprieve, then Alcoholics Anonymous might work for you, it works for me. Now I don't know nothing about nothing, I just know that for the first time in my life somebody said something that made sense to me. Now I don't know where it came from or why. But you kept coming in and you kept coming in and i didn't understand i figured you guys were holy rollers because all of a sudden somebody said something about god and that's when you lost me you see i come from a place where god was just totally totally boom 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 the walls went up but i kept going i uh, <clears throat> want to talk a little bit more about cmc um i, uh, uh, I uh, have a panel that i take in there um, well, actually, I'm actually the coordinator for all the panels that go in that penitentiary now. Um, the lady that was doing it, Kathy Bethel, who is was one of my dearest friends, um, was a counselor when I came in. She just retired uh, September of last year as assistant warden of that institution. And she had just started her apprenticeship when I started going to the meetings uh, in, that, in that institution. She'd only been out of college for about two years, and that was in 1977, and Kathy Bethel Uh, Two years before that, the guys had come and asked her because they were afraid they were going to lose their meeting because they didn't have a counselor uh, to come in and keep that meeting going. So she volunteered her time and since 19 for 1975 through last year uh, kathy was 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 the lady and, and the, she was a normie she was not an alcoholic and she worked for the institution she's probably uh, let me put it this way she's probably one of the only one of the few people that new york our central office has ever recognized as as a as a as, as a non-member of aa who was devoted un- undoubtedly service to her we we ended up uh, new york ended up uh, about two years ago when they heard she was going to retire uh sent a big plaque to her and and, and thank her for her service to alcoholics anonymous but kathy when i got there was just a regular old counselor she was just learning her trade and uh, like i said today she's one of my closest friends and she retired last year and she asked me to take over that responsibility which is a great honor for me I've been taking panels into that institution now for 22 years. And California Men's Colony is my home group, you know. There are guys in there. Now, California Men's Colony has, like I said, about 300 members. Eighty percent of those guys are lifers. So there are guys in there that I did time with, and there are guys in there that I have buried that I did time with. And I want to talk about one of those guys. His name is Zach. And when I got to the institution at CMC in, in, in 1977, 76, um, you know uh zach was a white convict and he was a lifer and zach died uh, last month or last last uh, october uh but anyway he died with 37 years behind the walls but zach uh and i uh like i said zach came to me because i was locked down and he said to me you know when you get out he says you seem like you like to fight he says on saturday nights we have boxing in the gym he says, you know, they have a big fight. He says, uh, why don't you come out? I'll teach you how to fight. We'll put you in the ring. Of course, I never got to the ring. But Zach used to shadow box me and talk to me and shadow box me and talk to me and run and talk. And what he said to me, he was 36 years old at the time, 35 when I met him. And he said to me, he says, you know, Bigum, he says, one of these days you're going to get a date, and they're going to let you out of this institution. What are you going to do? What do you know? And he says, he says, you know, there's a trade that you can learn. He says, it's called Water treatment. He says, it's in a steam plant. And he says, it's working with steam bo- with steam boilers. He says, there's only two places in the whole world you can learn this trade. He says, one is the Navy, and guess what? You're in the other place. And he said, he said, this institution has a steam plant. And he says, it's for our laundry. And he says, all you got to do, he says, is be willing to, to, to learn something new. He says I ain't never getting out of here. He says I'm 35 years old. And he says, if you reach 35 years old and you're still in here doing what I'm doing, the chances are you ain't never going to make it either. But there's hope for you. And he says, all you got to do is be willing to take a risk. And he says, it's not going to pay you big money, but I'm going to pay you a good living. So I thought, well, what the hell? I couldn't read. So Zach decided to teach me how to read. And he taught me well, how to read uh, from the, uh, there's a book, uh, if any of you are familiar with it, called Tell Stories, War and Peace. Now, that book's about yay big. If you can't read, it's actually like yay big. And, uh, and, uh, and I, remember, I remember him giving me this book and saying, here, you got a problem? Come see me. Now, if you've ever seen Tolstoy's War and Peace, I had a problem on the very first page, right? <laughs> and so I remember going to him and saying, what is that? And he is saying, well, by golly, here's Webster's Dictionary. If you have a problem with that, come and see me. And that's how I learned to read. So Zach pulled some strings and got me my job at the steam plant. I went to work out there, and and of course, you know, um, 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 and of course that's where I learned the trade that I have today. But I remember I was, this was in 1974, 1994, 95. I'm at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at the institution of the San Luis Obispo on my panel. And I'm standing there talking with the guy that I went to my first meeting with. His name is Charlie Cougar. And Charlie's been down now 37 years, going on 38 years. He's been locked up. He's doing life about the possibility. And him and I went to our first AA meeting together. And I remember me and Charlie, we sat next to each other, and we're standing there in 1995, and we're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, this new way of life that we have. And all of a sudden, this old guy walked up to me because it was in 1978, 77 that they separated me and sent me to another part of institutions. Because if you had to get the good jobs in the institution, you had to know convict, and 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 that's how you work. You work through a network. And so they moved me to another institution, another part of the institution, so I could go learn this trade that I have. And of course, you know, um, I didn't see Zach again until 1995. So I'm standing in this meeting, and this old convict walks up to me and he says, Don't I know you," and I says. Yeah, and Charlie says, of course you do, Zach. It's big, I and mean. reintroduced us to each other. And we held each other, and we cried. And I looked at Zach, and I said, Zach, do you know what I do for a living today? I'm an engineer today for the city of Glendale. I've worked for the city of Glendale for 22 years. They took me out of it when I got out, one year after I got out of the institution. They took a risk. I was the first ex-convict of my type that they've ever hired. And they put me through college, six years of college, and they trained me and I said it had to do with my, my, my experience with water treatment. They let me take a test, I passed it, and I work for them today. And I held Zach and I said, Zach I mean, is a, a direct result of you, Zach. And wherever I go, you will always live, because the bottom line is, is that my life today is a, direct, is, is, is a result of his input. He is one of my Eskimos. <clears throat> Zach died uh, September, October last year of stomach cancer. <clears throat> and we. You know, I was allowed to um, participate in that ceremony. Um, <clears throat> so these are the gifts that I have today. My sobriety is my way of life. There isn't anything out there, you or anybody else, that even can even come near of making it any different for me. I got freed. They let me walk out of that institution into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was you who came and got me. There was a man by the name of uh, Don L., who came and picked me up on the day I got out. And Donnell is still one of my dearest friends, and and Jim, you know, and he came and picked me up. He came and he said he would come and get me, and he came and got me, and he brought me to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he brought me to your meetings, you know? And the bottom line is, is that everything that I have today is I truly believe is a gift. You see, I didn't get sober because I had a problem. I got sober because it was suggested that it might be a good idea for me. I drinked and used all the time that I went to those meetings in the institutions. We had good drugs and we had great great homemade booze. That's the bottom line. And I didn't get sober until 1979, three months before, four months before I was able, was uh, actually six months before I walked out of the institutions to the streets of AA. And please understand, it's not, something that, it's not something that I, I thought was, 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 was anything I wanted to, to do, you know? There were two things I heard in that institution. The first one is that you do it one day at a time. And I've always lived one day at a time. I don't know about anybody else here, if you come from where I come from, you live one day at a time. I could do that shit standing on my head. The second thing they said is that you, you, you fake it till you make it. I did that all my life. I lied about who I was, what I was, where I came from, and what I was about. You know? And it took me a long time of having to walk through the different things that I had to walk through in the, on the streets of Alcoholics Anonymous for these things to change. I truly believe in the 12 steps, and I truly believe in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I truly believe that the 12 steps and the 12 traditions and the 12 concept of service are the principles, the 36 principles that you've given me to, to, to govern my life by. And I don't do it perfectly, and I will probably never do it perfectly, and I hope that I never, ever know what it is like to do it perfectly. Because the bottom line is this, is that on a daily basis, I get to learn new things about how to interact with people. I never knew how to interact with people. I come from a place where I didn't know nothing about nothing to being about friends. And Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to be a member of a family. He's taught me how to, how to, how to be a friend, how to be a father. And I'm not, sometimes I'm not that good of a father, but I'm learning, you know, on a daily basis. He's taught me how to be a damn good employee and how to be to be, to be dependable and to be consistent. I've never done those things. And it's been through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've been given these principles. And it's about continuing one day at a time to put one foot in front of the other. And the thing that I like the most is the sixth step, because the sixth step for me is about change. And what it says there is that change. I just that that I was the kind of person that I would, I mean, my God, I would apologize over and over and over Oh Man, I'm so worried. I mean, you know, and the minute you leave the room, I'm doing it again. And the sixth step said to me that today I'm a sober member, that once I become aware of a certain character defect, That all of a sudden I go to seven and I ask God to remove it and and something should happen for me and the change is is that it stops. That behavior stops. I don't have to repeat it again. I don't have to do it again. I don't have to come back and say I'm sorry. I get to move on to the next thing. And that's the gift of the program for me. One of the other things is a fifth step. I never understood the process of forgiveness until I had done the fifth step. And I had to do the fifth step again when I was 20 years sober before I could understand the concept of forgiveness that it talks about in the fifth step. It says that we continue to compile. We start to start a list of people we are willing to forgive. It says that in the fifth step. But the bottom line is there's a other. there's one person that I never ever placed in that list. It was myself. It took me 20 years to finally understand that you can't transmit something you ain't got and if you haven't forgiven yourself, and if you haven't done certain things to better your feelings, and your thinking, and your attitudes, then what are you trying to give away? Nothing, and I'm tired of having to live in that process, and that's how I've lived for a long, long time, and I had to go back and practice forgiveness of Michael, because I don't deserve it. If you come from where I come from, I don't deserve it. The 10 step and the 11 step are about forgiveness. You wanna know what forgiveness was about me? You son of a bitches, I, you owe me. That was a 10 step and 11 step for me. And it was my justifiable re, uh, 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 resentments that I found determined to make you know that you are the reason why. And I seem to forget that when I drink and used, something happened. When I drink and used, something happened. Somebody got to pick up the price tag. And when I came out of my so called blackout, somebody was quick to remind me, you son of a bitch, look what you did. Oh, now, I, don't know. I knew what I did I may not remember but I knew the minute I was coherent enough to look at your eyes and sit and hear your voice that I had done something and by the grace of God for me to be at the 10th and the 9th step talking about you being forgiven I was totally misarrayed because that's not what that step said for me it says that I go and I give forgiveness as I am being forgiven and that's the gift that's the gift more than anything else I go and I ask for it and I give it. And I don't show up with any intentions other than to be of service to God and to another human being to the best of my ability and then screw the results. Because the bottom line is that I'm not going to show up and hurt somebody that doesn't need to be hurt by my presence one more time. And I get to make my amends through my living process on a daily basis. And that's what I do today. I am so grateful for this program. I am so grateful for you.
2: All right, we're going to turn it over to step two, to part two. Thank you so much for listening in. It's awesome, awesome. This is tape. This is the kind of tape we listen to over and over and take notes, folks. Take notes. Wise minds give instructions to wise minds. Here we go. Thank you.
0: and you go to these silly little meetings and you work on your shitty attitude, your life may get better. And I said, oh, oh, so what? But I kept coming back. I want to say this to the new person. In the 12th step, it says there, if you ever get a chance, you know, uh, the 11th step. And let me talk about the 11th step. Let me talk about the 10th step first. I used to think that the tenth step for me now this is what now I, this is what works for me I don't know what works for you, but this is what works for me today. I used to think that the tenth step was about a cat of nine tails you know the old priests they go on the, they go on, they kneel, and they kneel and they, and they take the cat of nine tails and they do their pentance you know and the, and the, a lot of religions do that you know they do the pentance and I used to think that's what the ten step was about for me and then I had to reread it one more time, and it says there you know that we take a spot moral inventory. And we, we, we're, we're, we're like a business. A business that doesn't take a look at the goods that are spoiled and the goods that are good isn't a very good business. And all of a sudden I realized for myself that the 10 step was not about Michael doing pennies. It was about Michael for the first time seeing how far down the road he's come. Not how far down the road he's gone, you know, but the, uh, oh, he has to go, you know? The bottom line is that I know for me more than anything else is that I've come to understand that through the 10 step that when I make a mistake, when I, when I offend somebody, that I can't wait two weeks. I can't wait a month. I gotta either do what I need to do, go find my sponsor, and make the amends as soon as I possibly can, and move on. And that from that I get to learn something new. I get to learn how to be dependable and consistent. You know, there are things that I hear in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that drives me nuts. One of them is think, 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 that's turned upside down. That's not what that's about. Okay, yeah, your thinking's upside down, but if you be an alcoholic like me, my thinking's always been upside down. But it's not because I hadn't, didn't have the ability to think, it's because I didn't have the ability to think think my thoughts through. If it came into my head, it was an action. I never took the time to just step back and stop. And think, think, think means to think, think, get through I never did that I never did that I took a drink or I thought I thought it was done it was over then I thought about it afterwards the other one is, is, is keep it simple stupid if you ever walk to me and say stupid I'm gonna punch you lights out because where I come from that's a derogatory term and it's an insult and I've been insulted with that word all my life I can go back as far as I can remember when I used to daydream as a kid and I was then they would say, is he stupid? And I come to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous to continue to have you call me stupid? I don't think so. The bottom line it says keep it simple. It means to easy does it. Take your time. Don't take the, 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 little, the little bitty things and make them into big old gigantic nightmares. You don't have to do that today. And you're not stupid. You're just a human being learning new behaviors. And sometimes you take those behaviors to the extreme. And all it's saying to you is just easy does it. Take your time. Keep it simple. One day at a time. One foot in front of the other. And by the grace of God, if you're new here, and somebody calls you stupid, punch him. (laughs) Bottom (laughs) line. Because you're not stupid. And you don't have to live with that kind of title today. You are are an alcoholic who has found a positive way of living, and you should be reminded of that on a daily basis. The 11th step. (coughs) I had a problem with God. A major problem with God. But the 11th step gave me a newfound identity. It says there in the 11th step, it says, that through the practice of prayer meditation, we find peace of mind. Now, I don't know about anybody else in this room. I've spent my whole life looking for peace of mind. And it's not from you. It's with self. I want so hard to be at peace with myself, and I never was. And it says that in the 10th step, that through these practices, that you will be given a gift called peace of mind. And from that gift, you are given the ultimate example of life, and it's called a, 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 a spiritual maturity. It's called, uh, so it's called um, 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 being mature emotionally and mentally. It's called emotional maturity, is what it says in the book. It says emotional maturity. You are given emotional maturity. You get to be an adult. Yeah. The 12 step, if you ever get a chance to read the 12 step in the 12 and 12, the first two pages and the last two pages are probably the most powerful pages, I don't know for you, but they were for me that I've ever read. What they say there is this, that our program is based upon, if you are now at the 12 step, you should have been given a spiritual awakening. You see, I used to think that the white light that Bill talked about was all of a sudden for the first time in his life, he got this, 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 this angel appeared to him and, and struck him sober and he was sent and catapulted into the, the the fifth dimension. And that's not what I understand Bill meant. What Bill was trying to say and that he ralbied everybody by. He was Bill was not a very good uh, a writer, and he wrote how he talked. And what he was saying was, at one point of his life, he had had a spiritual experience. And he didn't know when that, sp- he didn't know he was having it, but he was having it. And it happened when Abby showed up to his home and brought him the concept of, you must give it away to keep it. And he didn't know that that was the beginning of his spiritual experience until he had traveled through whatever he needed to get to, that he was all of a sudden in this hospital, and all of a sudden the white light of awakening. It was the light of awakening that came to him. All of a sudden he was awakening to a new dimension and a new way of life. That's what he's talking about. And I truly believe that to be a reality for me because it says that in the 12th step. It says that we've had a, a spiritual awakening. And it is, to those of you new, you cannot have awakening until you've had the experience. The awakening is the result and the awareness of an experience. It says there that from this, that we go and we practice love, patience, and tolerance. We try to give it away. We remember that we're only human beings and that our our character defects that we bring into these programs can can be of service and value to another human being. If we are willing to do the right thing. And that is what it's all about. Being willing to stay sober and do the right thing. And it says that. And that by this we go and we give it away to keep it. We go and we share the good news. And the good news is how you had your spiritual awakening. The good news is that you found a way that life that works for you. The good news is that you don't have to drink one day at a time. And the really good news is this, newcomer, you don't ever have to do it alone again. Never. Never. For the first time in your life, you get to do it with somebody, and you get to hold us, you get to hold our hands to the fire, and you get to make us say, yes, 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 yes. We'll keep coming back. We'll keep coming back for you. If you're new here, don't drink. Go to means. Become willing to work on your shitty attitudes and your actions, and I promise you, your life gets better. Thanks. <laughs> oh,
1: Thanks, Mike. My-
3: Put hand. My name is Nancy. I'm a grateful alcoholic. Nancy. <laughs> Does that make the newcomers sick? some of the remarks before I'm actually two years uh, thank you, oh that's beautiful see my drinking from the bottle days are, you know thank you, preferably it'd be crystal, but this'll do
1: crystal
3: glass Uh, anyway, I was about to tell you that I'm 28 years sober, so I'm two years younger than the club Oh, well. <laughs> I think mean, it's kind of neat because I, I was here a couple times when I was new, and since then, and there's something very um very compelling. There's something very real about these old clubs that are our cherished homes where we're born, and uh, uh and that's true all over the country. I've got a from an old club in Kansas, one of the early haunts of Phil W and the old boys when they're driving through the middle of the country, just hanging on, you know, before they had central office and world renown, and they just had each other, to hang on, anyway, they actually gave me a sign from this old club, from the walls itself, and I'm just, I'm just very thrilled, it's, it has a serenity part, serenity prayer etched on it, and they gave it to me when I was back there. And it's like this. This the AA history is very, very special. It's very real and very special. And so I really enjoy being a part of this. And I I'm glad to see new people. And and uh, and I want to welcome the new people, especially. You know, what I mean. I hope you feel kind of bad because you know. It seems to work better if you feel real desperate. I don't know. It's just my opinion. Um, I, I, you know, what do I know? I mean, I came to AA and I didn't know I was gonna get sober. I didn't really know that. I, uh, I actually, my first sober day was June 28, 1976, and I wore a bikini to my first meeting. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't good. Uh, I had. I had a great big black eye and I had a fillip and I was about, and I was, and I, well, at the end of my drinking found me real, real puffy from drinking. You know, I just kind of blew up like a, one of those big blowfish. So I was real swollen from drinking and I perspired all the time, even in the air conditioning. In fact, I, I met, a guy met me when I had about three weeks of sobriety and he said, Oh, you'd be pretty if you had a towel. <laughs> And it took me three days to get mad about it. Then I called my sponsor, but you know, that's the way it goes. But anyway, so I went to my first meeting that day and I'm sorry, I'm fat and I'm wearing a bikini. And the reason for the bikini was I didn't know I was really going to go to the meeting. I didn't know I was really going to get sober that day. Did not know it. I had this crazy brain. And it was June, which is sort of overcast in California, right? A lot of times you don't know what's going to be like. So, and I had these crazy sleeping habits that you get, you know, at the end of your drinking. As you hit that, the bottom of what they used to call the gel neck curve. Because there's a whole physiology to being an alcoholic. There's a whole physiology to having a body that won't let you drink at a certain point without paying a terrible price, you know. It's like. I mean, what they used to say is that if you're an alcoholic like us, Nancy, they said, you have a body that says, I'll kill you if you drink, and you have a mind that says, I'll kill you if you don't drink. (laughs) You know what I mean. And so what happens to us in our fellowship and by learning to live this way of life is we, we learn to negotiate that and to make peace there. And we surrender, okay, 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 I cannot drink anything, and I can't take anything that's going to do my work for me. I've got to be a person. Show me how, right? So I'm excited. But anyway, so I, so I didn't know if I wanted, I didn't get sober. What does that mean? You know, so I have this black eye and I'm fat, and I don't know, I have a meeting directory, because I had been to a meeting the day before, which I'll tell you about. And anyway, I had this meeting directory, <laughs> And the, actually, the day before was so appalling. I mean, I might as well tell you right now, I hated my first meeting. It's just terrible. Just terrible. And all first meetings are the worst, aren't they? I mean, the very first meeting, it's like, it's like all the pink and white people of the universe show up. <laughs> and they all saw me coming with my eye. And that morning, I had put, I knew, you know, I was drunk, I was crazy, but I knew I wasn't beautiful. I knew that. I knew my face was out of balance, so I put a lot of makeup on the other eye so that my eyes would match. And when you have that Maybelline vodka tremble going on, it's hard. So I just kind of was doing the deal, and I just overdid it. And then I realized it was, and I had to correct that. So I put makeup on my black eye. Ow! You know. So by the time I left my little Laurel Canyon rock and roll pad, man, I looked like an animal coming out of the Hollywood Hills. And I and I wore clothes that could have gone on their own if I'd given them directions and money. You know. Because <laughs> I was so cool. And then I and I to take I have to take off my speaker jacket now. This was just to show you that I was already covered, but no, don't, don't let me forgive you. So I went down and I went into this, the first meeting, which is all these squeaky, pinky white people,
1: and they're all so
3: noisy. Not unlike the happiness filling the room this evening. And the, and the one thing I really hated about the first meeting was how early it was, they started at noon. <laughs> I didn't know anybody who was out at noon. You know, I've been out at noon for years. Noon! God! God. So so I was in a bad mood before I got there, with the whole noon business in the eye. And and I walked in, and there were all the pink and white people at the first meeting. Now, I don't know where they go to meetings, but they're always in first meetings, right? And they all all were waiting for me. They they had plotted this thing, because when I showed up, They all said the same thing. They all said exactly the same thing. This is what they said. Hi. They're so glad to see me because I look so terrible. Hi. We're so grateful to be sober. And those two words, grateful to be sober, man, those things were capital letters great fun to be sober, and you're not rude. And, um, and then they, and they all said the same thing, and then they popped the question, they all asked the same question, they looked at me with those patronizing eyes, and they said, are you nude? <laughs> So and, and as a result of that, I got my first sober feeling, which was resentment.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah. So it was like torture until the darn meeting started. You know, because you have to <laughs> hang out and be sort of friendly. It's be very painful to be friendly when you're a new, crazy, wet drunk. So anyway, the meeting unfolded and I didn't want anything. I didn't hear anything, didn't want anything. But I left the room that day with uh, with a with something that brought me back, and it was a, a mental picture of the woman who was who was leading the meeting, and I don't know her name. I never have met her since June twenty seventh, nineteen seventy six. Oh, I wish I had drunk with you. Look at that, I got two. <laughs> yeah, go to the rafters. They'll teach you right. <laughs> So anyway, uh, so I was in this meeting, and, and but the woman who was leading the meeting was absolutely beautiful. And I'll tell you that this is why I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't because I was looking for God, I wasn't looking for a better way of life. I, di- I didn't intend to stop drinking. But what brought me back was booze and this woman who was so beautiful. And I, I don't mean that she was beautiful from the Lancome Special, you know or Estee Lauder. She was beautiful from the inside out, which is something that you can't even inherit. You get it, one day at a time. Men and women become beautiful here. And you know how we look when we're in the center of the deal. When you're in the center of the deal, there's something powerful about a sober alcoholic. And they don't even need to know that you are to feel that. You know, And this woman's demeanor and expression and the vision of her, Brought me back to Alcoholics Anonymous the next day in my bathing suit.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: and there was this big drunk in between there, you know. So, I, well, well, I was actually a little drunk. My last drunk was a stupid drunk. I left that meeting, that noon meeting. I couldn't wait to get out of there. People were chasing me down the street. Give us 90 days. Just give us 90 days. <laughs> I had little paper phone numbers blowing out of my hands and- <laughs> And and I went and I bought a bottle and I took it back. I was right with my two my two last friends, and I used that term friends loosely. I I ended up, you know my companions were at the end of my drinking life? There were two gay men who were drug addicts. And they didn't drink my wine and they cleaned my house. I laughed, someone understands. <laughs> that was it. And I had had a big life before that. And you know, we all had, right? So I took my bottle after this AA meeting up to one of these gay guys' pads. And he rented a pad in, in Hollywood Hills. Supposedly, some of these old-time movie stars haunted it. And, you know, we used to have lots of drugs talking to haunted old movie stars. Anyway. I just took my bottle up there and put it down and started drinking out of it, and he's sitting across the room from me, sniffing and snorting and beeping and honking and doing his drug deal, you know, and I'm drinking and talking, and I "I got this relationship, right? (laughs) And and all of a sudden, he took a break, and he looked at me, and he said, you've really got a drinking problem. (laughs) 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 But you know what? It, it, it just—it was, that was nothing that was, I, I wasn't halfway through that bottle I wasn't halfway through that bottle I really wasn't but after he said that there was a big shift in my foundation it was some kind of a wordless just a collapse I know you know I know that each person who's here and intends to stay has had a moment that last drunk where there's the shift in your foundation, and you just, you know, they call it being sick and tired of being sick and tired. They call it, the, you know, the, it's where you just, you know, you know, the poos I had that. And I got up and I left a bottle two thirds full. A moment of silence. <laughs> Oh. You know how we are. Didn't you used to do clean up all the time? I always did clean up at the parties. Oh, I'll clean up. I don't mind cleaning up. We get a little fussed about clean up sober, but right it, not. So anyway, I walked out that day and, and I came back the next day in my bikini. And, and, you know, I that was my first sober day. And I didn't know it was going to be. It was June 28, 1976. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an absolute fantastic journey in Alcoholics Anonymous for each one of us. And, and to you new friends, I don't know what's going to happen to you. I don't know what your sober life is going to be like, but I know that it's going to be good. Because I, that's what I know about people in Alcoholics Anonymous. We live beautiful lives even sometimes when the bottom's falling out. Isn't that the magic of it? The bottom falls out sometimes sober when you're right in the middle of the deal and you laugh your way through it. Come on, you know? It's just like another world, it's beautiful. But I was never headed here. You know, I was never headed here in my conscience was not to come be a sober woman in alcohol synonymous. Never, ever, ever. I was a star. I was an artiste. I had, you know, Things to say and do. And, you know, this was not my plan. I, I was born in Glendale, and I, I used to say I grew up, but I've never grown up yet, so I was born in Glendale. And I say that I'm a born alcoholic because this, this is my theory now. There's, there's, there's Nancy's ideas, and there's AA ideas. You'll just have to figure out which one of which. But, you know, That will always drive you into the brook when you go to a speaker meeting, Uh, I'm a born alcoholic because my mom carried me for 10 months. I was in the womb going, no, no. And my little fins pressed up against the uterine wall going, no. Be born. <laughs> then I'm ducked out and I'm a victim. Yes?
1: <laughs>
3: I want to start Victims Anonymous, but everybody will feel so picked on. Every- <laughs> will you read? No! <laughs> anyway, um, to you know a family where there's an Irish sensitive writers artists musicians in the family my dad was a big writer on the early times and my mom and dad moved out here before I was born from Pennsylvania and they had two older uh, they had two two daughters and my older sisters they drove out here you know the, it's like that romantic time in our culture the late 40s the 50s you know kind of and, uh, and, they, and they landed in Glendale and, uh, and, I, and I, was, I was born and, and 18 months after I was born, I'm like a little, little little thing on the floor there. My dad died, my dad died uh, of a heart attack. And I uh, I just toddled around his head and I said, that's a daddy, that's a daddy. And my, my mom is like shattered. Everything is like shattered. And but she keeps the three girls together, you know. This is like the 50s when single parenthood was tough, man, tough. No support, you know. Her sisters all wanted to take each one of the girls, but my mom held it together. So so that's a kind of stock, you know. My mom did it at a time when it was real hard to do. And uh, and she moved us. She started the big house, moved into one part of a little duplex and Glenn, all these little girls in this little duplex and, and put us through Catholic school and stuff. But here's what, here's what me, the alcoholic, felt about all this. The thing that I carried in Alcoholics Anonymous is, is the feeling that I killed my dad. Doesn't make any sense, does it? How could an 18-month baby kill her dad? But That's what I lived with before this program. And I didn't even realize it until I was working these steps and doing the work that we do, that I had to drop that rock part of the guilt, part of the shame, Then, i very, I felt, when I got here, that I, 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 how dare I breathe? How dare I take up space? Now don't get all sad on me, I'm just kind of reporting. So, uh, that was what I brought to you. And that was what, but when I was a little kid, I felt my way, and so I tried real hard to be the best little kid on the block. I tried real hard to be the best little kid that God ever made. And, the, and I went to Catholic school, and I did really hard. And then when I got to be 13 years old, I just got tired of that. It's a famous age in AA, 13, for drinking. And, I, and so I started, I got tired of trying to be good. I just got mad. I got mad from the primordial place, deep in us, where we suddenly look around and say, hey, this sucks. You know? It happens a lot at 13. And I was just in the bathroom at Catholic school going, this sucks. And I had that adolescent rage. You know what they say about adolescence? They say that when you turn 13, aliens enter your bedroom and they take your brain and they bring it back when you're 18. Well, they they missed my place. <laughs> I anyway, said, so I'm, I'm 13, I'm too tall to have a boyfriend in, in Catholic school and I'm a geek and I don't know anything and so I started running around with the other gangsters at Catholic school and uh, and I wanted to have some fun and so we did and we had that vodka and orange juice in the bathroom and that first drink oh my goodness just beautiful the first drink that gives you the relief and the Fun. Man, I was a fun job for many, many years. I truly loved it. Believe me, believe me, if you knew, if there was that kind of fun in my body, I would never have come to AA or stayed here. But it's gone. They told me that it's gone and there's no reverse on our disease. Once the train is rolling, there's no reverse. It can't be cured. We can only treat it with total absence. So but Brian, it was, it yeah, so it made me feel really great right away. So that's why I say I'm a born alcoholic, because it really worked. It wasn't what it was doing to me, what it was doing for me that made all the difference. And I looked in the mirror with just a little vodka in me, and I looked in the mirror, and, hey, you know, I was cute. <laughs> I had big zits, but I was cute. My chest but cute, you know. And I didn't look like, see, it then it was always like, you with the pretty blonde, straight hair. That was the same song, but I, you know, but it didn't matter with the vodka. I was cute, you know? <laughs> but more important than being cute was the feeling that, you know, I have learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had guts. Because I was just a scared kid. I was a scared kid. But when I had the vodka in me, I had some guts, had some courage. Then the bell rang, went back to religion class, and I turned my will and my life over to that experience of this vodka in me. And the next year I was in public school, you know. <laughs> and my mom was kind of, you know, I was I was, uh, I was uh, too much for my mom, you know. She dealt with the other two, and there I was, just, I was just burning rubber through my mom's life, yes? And I'm in public school and now I'm writing my hair really high, so I look like a bad girl, you know, scary. They used to wrap their hair really high and put razor blades in the hairdo to be ready. I was too scared to put razor blades in my hairdo, but I wanted to look like it was terrible, like it was gonna happen. And, <laughs> and I wore tons of makeup, you know, we had the Elizabeth Taylor black eyes and, and white lipstick. Do you remember the white lipstick? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's coming back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Everything else came back. <laughs> and I became a thief, I started to steal. Now, our literature talks about people like me and the victims and the angry ones because we think the world knows us a living. Guess what? Nobody owes me anything, but I had to find that out in Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not know that. At first, I heard it through a funny share. Somebody was talking about putting a note on the refrigerator for the alcoholic that she lived with. And it said, Dear uh, dear Joe, I don't know you anything. Love God. <laughs> but I mean I, I didn't know that. I thought I was cheated and I was mad about it. And I became a thief to take what I wanted. And but I was a nice thief. I, I didn't steal from my friends.
2: <laughs> I
3: I fancied myself uh you remember Robin Hood? <laughs> yeah. Robin Hood stole from the rich and gave to the poor, didn't he? Yeah, it was a nice, like, I will help you. Except, I was a half-measure Robin Hood. I'm stealing from the Broadway and Macy's, and it stays right here. Yeah, and we're all laughing at this, you know so beautiful, because we discover the laughter of our lives. So anyways, I'm, and I'm also a bad uh, high school student, terrible high school student, mm-hmm. breaking my mother's heart all over the place. I saw my first therapist when I was 15 years old, and uh, it meant nothing to me, absolutely nothing, because I already had decided how I wanted to live. I discovered the coffee houses in Hollywood. Now when you're growing up, and see Red, Glendale was a redneck little burg back in the 60s. So running away to Hollywood was fabulous. And and the coffee houses in Hollywood, well, I gotta tell you because so many of you are so young and I get to do this now because I got some miles on me. But I get to tell you that the coffee houses in Hollywood were not Starbucks. (laughs) They were dark little joints, yeah, right? Yeah, Jim knows, you remember. They were dark little joints. Where there was so much smoke in there and you stuck to all the furniture. <laughs> you just stuck to the walls, you stuck to furniture. And it was great. I loved it, you know. And there was all these other people like me and you. All the other losers were in there. there was like <laughs> Artists and writers and politicals and people on the outside—the people who have that special thing inside that says no—the the the outside people—and that was it. It was kind of like, you know, before a picture of the A. You know, hey, I'm just telling you the way it is. Somebody asked me when I was new. They said, "Who do you think we are?" I said, "I don't know." They said, "We're the people you drank with," and sure enough, you are. I understand you perfectly. We look at each other and we barely mean to say, how was your day? We just know. <laughs> yeah, you are right. he's going to a meet again. He looks at you. Yeah, I don't know how his day <laughs> <laughs> They don't do that out there. Some of them do. But we have uh, a certain special thing. And I've always hung out with alcoholics and addicts. I just love us. I Never tried to be a social drinker in my whole life, ever. Never tried to put on the dog and clean it up. I just knew I was on the edge and that was it. So here I am, a young kid, running away, to Hollywood all the time in these coffee houses and sing. The greatest thing that was there was the music. Now, I, I'm a singer. I'm a born singer, musician. God gave me a gift. I think he gave me music until I could find a drink. Because <laughs> 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 music has pulled me through my whole life. It meant everything to me. So I'm in these coffee houses. Great people, great atmosphere, great ambiance. And the best part is the music. The music of the 60s, which was just tearing it up. This is rock and roll now. This is the birth of real rock and roll, right? This just coming out of the 50s and then into this thing, and it becomes a voice, becomes a people's music. I don't know if it still is that, but it became, it was our voice. And the war, and the women's movement, and all this stuff is going, well, I didn't really know too much about that. But what I really loved was the atmosphere of protesting. I did. Is that kindred of spirit? No. <laughs> That I mean, was good. You know, in the '60s, remember you could just open your door, and if you listened really carefully, you could hear someone somewhere screaming, "No!" <laughs> everyone had a, everyone had something. So I love that atmosphere, and I love to go to these peace marches and have drugs. and all. So that was my scene. That was me standing around singing "Puff the Magic Dragon." Don't <laughs> <laughs> you missed those days, huh?
4: <laughs> yeah, baby.
3: So I met these musicians in there and I'm about to graduate from high school and my life changed forever. There were just crazy musicians that were the first. Before the word multicultural was ever invented, these musicians appeared. It's a wonderful group in a little coffee house called the Scarab. It sounds like scab, doesn't it? The Scarab. It was down by L.A. City College. And they were all jammed in there and they played everything. They had a cello, and
1: bongos.
3: (laughs) And they had a violin, and a flute, and a lepifano guitar, and all kinds of percussion. They were doing it, they were doing it. And they had every color, skin. Everyone was colorblind in this band. It's beautiful. And I wandered in one night, and I just, I was sucked into this cacophony of sound, man. It was just beautiful. You know, like Chuck Berry and these guys had been jamming with three guitars and drums forever. Now, this is a rock and roll jam with these instruments. <laughs> it was so much fun. Taking out the cello for the hippies.
1: <laughs>
3: but I'm getting ahead of my story. They were called Jay Walker and the Pedestrians. And I stood up in the middle of the room and I started singing with them. I just sang right out of the center of me where I lived. And it was beautiful. And we really caught it. Man, we just caught it. We just did it. Beautiful we actually played a real gig once, but <laughs> it was so hard to stop and start. <laughs> too many people, too many keys. <laughs> wow. But eight of us broke away from Jay Walker, and I got bumped out of Glendale High School. They said, goodbye, i never come back here again. Here's your degree, which I can hardly read, right? Eight of us broke away from Jay Walker, we set up in a little house in Silver Lake. Little Italian family. Second generation Italian family. In other words, they came from the old country and had all country life there. They had there was the shop, the TV repair shop and the house. It was a neighborhood place. I mean really you go up to the front door, over the front door it's a big sign with red letters. Anthony's TV and Lawnmower repair. So we're gonna be rock stars from this place. So you walk in the door and the first room is the TV repair shop, and there's every kind of TV and radio going back as far as radio goes. Just everything, floor to ceiling. And there's bicycles, and there's roller skates, and there's lawnmowers, and there's a cat in the corner always giving birth to kittens. And there's there's a guy in the other corner with a soldering gun and a cigarette his whole life, 30 years, this guy's a... They walk into the next room, which is a little yellow kitchen, and this is like the heart of the, of the house, right? Yes, the heartbeat, the kitchen. And there's always coffee on the stove, and there's wine on the table, and there's Italian cookies, and there's one wall that's floor to ceiling pictures of the kids, and awards and ribbons and stuff. It's like a home here, and it's Anne and Anthony. Now they're like four feet ten, all the time, and they and they and they look up at me and they go, oh. She's so beautiful. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you know? And I'm taken into this home with a mom and a dad. See, I don't know about a dad. I'm looking for a dad like all my life till then, and now there's a dad there. Oh, she's a so beautiful. And then in the next room we put the band. Okay, so there's eight, 18 to twenty-one year old strapping guys like some of the buff dudes in here tonight, right? These kind of guys all fill up this little living room. We broke the couch, we've got drums in there, we've got amplifiers in there. There's no room for me, so I'm singing back in the kitchen, right? And this band was born like that, mm-hmm. in Silver Lake, in this little house, you know? And we call ourselves Sweetwater. And we just went from there to the whiskey go go You know, people say there's no such thing as an overnight success. Yes, there is, and it depends on the time. It depends on the time. It was like God said, This is the way it's going to be with these people. And He took me out of high school and He dropped me into the Whiskey and Gogo, where we opened for Janice Joplin and Big Brother and the Horton Company. Eleven record companies came and bid for us. That never happens anymore. So we're history in the making, right? Yes? Beautiful. Inside of me, I'm just like, I love this. I'm an alcoholic. You know, I'm crazy with this. I'm like, Whoa! 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 Oh, it's great! We go on the road, we play everywhere, all over the country. We playing all the big rock and roll rules in our country. We played all these big, all this legendary stuff. We played it all, everywhere. We played with all the rock and roll legends. I've got stories. I've got stories. What a marathon speaker I could be. I've got stories. But I'm going to tell you about me, because that's the way it works, that's how it works in here. I have to tell you my experience. I did the inside of me. I had, I was, this was too much, this was just unbelievable, this success, because I had two things going on, and you might recognize this. On the one hand, I felt so much better than everybody who'd ever been mean to me. It's like, you missed out, baby. I bet you're sorry you pushed me in the sixth grade, aren't you? you know, I just, same time I had a terrible fear that you would find out I was no good, that I was a big phony. And I, I, you know, we try to teach each other constantly that we live a life of love and service and moderation, yes? But I have this dramatic, crazy personality, so I'm either on top or on the bottom. And our literature describes that perfectly. I'm either up here or I'm down here. And so that's the way I'm handling this, what's going on with us? We were the first band to take the stage at Woodstock. And they cut us out of the movie.
1: Yeah,
3: I hate when that happens too. You know that the only place that's funny is they
2: Nancy Part
3: 2. If you were still in that movie, put it with that, right? Four months after Woodstock, three days after we take the Red Skelton show, which for those of you who are just not born yet, this is a like Red Skelton is like pre-MTV, okay? So three days after we take the Red Scum Show, I was hit by a drunk driver and my life changed forever. I mean, I was changed forever. You know, it was very... happened on the Ventura Freeway and I was rear-ended in the rain and my car went into a phenomenal spin across the freeway and when it stopped spinning, my girlfriend who was with me was not injured. She got out and she started to wander around in the rain. What had happened is, there was fender benders that crossed the freeway and I couldn't drive through. So I had to stop my car. I turned to my friend and I said, phew, we made it. And right after I said that, he hit me. 65 miles an hour. They took me to Glendale Memorial Hospital on the one night of the month. Guess that one night of the month when all the neurologists in Southern California are having their meeting. They're all the head doctors. Now I pushed up doing steel up six inches. I made a crater shaped like my head in the car roof. No seatbelt, right? So all these head doctors worked on me. I'm, go- I'm out. I'm gone. I'm dying. They put me on every manner of life support. They drilled a couple holes up here. The priest came. The family came and cried. I'm dying. And the doctor said, this girl will not live. No one can survive a blow like that. <laughs> Yep. I think they're all dead. <laughs> you and I know there's a power greater than all the neurologists of Southern California. Yes. This life that we are Trying to get rid of and kill before this program is so precious, and God is so powerful, that if it's not time, you're not going yeah. So, I came out of this coma, and I, uh, I had brain damage, past tense, I'm okay now. <laughs> damage for 12 years now the reason i like to talk about that tonight is because there might be somebody here with some condition and you've been told that you're going to have it all your life and you know i'm not a doctor and maybe that's true but that's what they told me they said you're going to have the doctor call them spells you're going to have spells all your life and when I was six years sober, I had a normal brainwave readout. So my brain is just like Earth people. And I attribute that to just the good life in Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's a kind of a possibility. If you have something and you stay in the chair, we don't know what kind of blessings are going to rain down on you. But they're going to come. I also... In that accident permanently lost the use of one of my vocal cords so i came out of this accident and i lost the only reason i had to live because i was a born singer i wasn't anything else there was nothing i could do or wanted to do and now i couldn't do that one thing so what is that like that was so bad i couldn't look at it i didn't believe it I had this paralyzed vocal cord and I just, you know, if I believed it, I would just, I would do that if I believed it. You know we're not like that, right? You know how we are? We're alcoholics, man. We dig in. No! He said, no! <laughs> <laughs> no! He said, a little soft. We have one vocal cord. No! <laughs> that's when denial becomes your friend. You know, so, no. <laughs> and so I, I had six operations on my throat. I got out of the hospital after two months. And I started working on my voice, and one doctor said, you'll never do it, and then someone else said, she sends chords, not notes. And I, I don't care what that guy says. But I knew that no one was going to help me but me to get my voice back. Now, I was also told you can never drink. You can't drink. You have a terrible head injury. But what do they know? know.
1: Right?
3: I'm drinking in a matter of days. And I must have been very interested to drink that <laughs> So that's what happened. Sweetwater was just devastated. Devastated. Look, I wasn't the only one almost a rock star. They were too. And it was ripped away from us. And if they say alcoholics are the almost people. You heard this? <laughs> yes. We almost get the job. We almost keep the house. We almost kept the car. You know? So they say when you get here, you're the almost people. You're almost you're the almost rock stars. We so were just almost really, really big. We struggled. We had a hard time. We're young, young people, and no tools for living and all this pain. And what do you do with all that pain? You use drugs and you drink and you and you look at each other and you hate each other and it all falls apart. Eventually the last album we tried to piece together. We just couldn't even show up in the studio at the same time. It was just insane. And, um, and I, I had no voice. It was just a whole patchwork deal, man. It was just a patchwork deal. But we broke up, and I thought, good. Good. They're holding me back. And so... um. grow without us. You know, more and more women are coming on the scene and more great music is happening. And and I'm right up there trying to work the deal and get a, my own deal. And I've learned to write music better and got some bands going and got some got some stuff out there, had some action. I'm doing all right. You know, I'm drinking. Fair enough. Got a new record deal. And a year after my deal, when my record came out, record company collapsed, and I knew it was me. I knew it was all my fault. I did it. Wiped down a whole record company. <laughs> now, by this time, I'm completely certifiable, and I'm just walking around out there, you know. And whatever your story, whatever profession you're in, you get to this place where you're just certifiable. You get to a place where you're drunk all the time, whether you've been drinking or not. We laughed in Laguna Beach. I lived in Laguna Beach for 17 years in my sobriety, beautiful. And we used to laugh at the new meeting. Just when California changed that law to where it's 0.8 for drunk, right? That was hysterical the meetings. We laughed, we said, man, we just woke up 0.8 every day. You know? <laughs> we're constantly just sort of, you know. Anyway, after that record company collapsed and it's it, like more of these people were picking on me, you know? I more people picking on me. And so I, I got tired of putting bands together and I started playing my own piano and I got a bass player who smoked a lot of pot and lost the power of speech, you know. And it's kind of hard to, if you made mistakes down there, who's going to know, you know?
1: <laughs>
3: and I started broken this around and, and it was terrible. <laughs> terrible. I was terrible. And I started doing the one thing I said I'd never do. Which I know many of you have had that one promise, you know, at the end of your drink and I'll never do this, and you do it. One day you just do it. And you know, a- along with sleeping with weird people. <laughs>
4: I, yeah.
3: I laughed so hard when I heard a speaker say that she was the weirdo that the guy woke up. I, I became the weird one. So um <laughs> But for me, it was to be drinking and performing, you know, I mean, I used to drink around it, but to actually be performing with food, it, it was like, but it's good. And, uh, and life was terrible. I, was just, I had, I didn't have a life. Life is gone now, and eventually I, I couldn't go out. Eventually I stopped playing, because I couldn't play. By the time I got to Alcoxenosa, in that bathing suit, in that condition... <laughs> I couldn't tell you what a C chord on the piano was, and that's very simple for any players. You know how simple that
1: chord
3: is. That's what my drinking did, and it just cut away all the people. My mom, my sisters—nothing to do with it. Never loved a man out there. Just didn't know what that was all about. I mean, I know what sex was about, but I didn't know what loving somebody. You know, it says on page 53. I just love knowing that page. It says that we never knew how to have a true partnership. It's the 12 and 12, page 53. We never knew how to have a true partnership. And I never did. I didn't know how to be a worker among workers, a friend among friends, a band member among band members. I had no idea. I was always Nancy against the world. And you know what? The world won. Because I'm an alcoholic. And it's a hopeless condition until you find recovery. And recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous is the very best. It's the very best. They're doing all kinds of stuff, You know, they're out there inventing pills, right? Pills for us now, again. One more, this comes up periodically every five or ten years. Says, Alcoholics can take this pill. Well, who wants to take a pill and be the same creep you were? Do you understand? Who wants a pill like that, man? I don't have that personality, need a drink, but not have it do anything to me. I mean, come on. So if you're new turn yourself in give it up honey we lost brains here we lost i remember that uh it it was beautiful my my early sobriety i hated everything and and i i hated being a newcomer being a newcomer in alcohol Anonymous is horrible i i mean my heart just goes out to newcomers because it's horrible Everybody just looks down on you. You have no clout. Shut up! <laughs> and I had a big ego, and I had no clout in AA. It was really awful.
1: <laughs>
3: so I was sitting around with that black eye for a long time. and I had, I'll tell you, it all hit me when I had five days without a drink and without drugs and going to AA meetings. And I woke up that morning with five days without a drink or any drugs. Oh, man. I woke up, and God presented me with an idea. The idea was, I'll bet people in AA don't have big boxes of dope in their closet. (laughs) (laughs) I had that big Hollywood box of dope. You know what? I'll bet they don't have those in AA. Oh, yeah. Well, so then I decide, like drama queen that I am, that I've got to sell the, you know, if, if there was strychnine in there, I wouldn't sell it to anybody, I'd just throw it, right? But no, it's poison in this box, but let me sell it. So, and I figured a perfect asking price was $30, because Judas sold Jesus his savior for 30 pieces of silver. So I thought, how poetic that I sell my dope for every
1: <laughs>
3: So I called the other gay man that I ran around with. this guy had a weird body. I mean, it was strange. This is the kind of fellow who smoked pot and did exercises. Do you understand? When we smoke pot, we are trying to be mellow, yes? This guy would do jumping jacks. <laughs> so I called him up and I said, "Bill, do you want it, Do you want to buy the dope for thirty bucks?" And I say, "Man, it's like the movies." I just barely hung up. He's at the door. And I opened the door and he's doing jumping jacks. And I handed him the box. And you know, I've never seen him again. Never got a call from him. He never called and say, "Hey, how you doing with those meetings? How you feeling? Good for you? Nothing." Gone like a roadrunner, man. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so then the day goes on and I'm in an 838A meeting. Like this gathering. Noisy, happy people, right? Everybody's eyes are dead on you, man. They look, right? They check you out. They smile. They're noisy. Hi! We're so grateful to be sober? Hi! Yeah, it's just terrible. And I'm sitting in the back of the room and I'm dying because I just sold the dope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm a Woodstock queen, man, and I'm with the Brady Bunch of AA. <laughs> and I can't go home again. And I book described the place that says, that alcoholics will come to know loneliness like few people do. We know loneliness like few people do. We will reach a place where we can't picture life with alcohol and we can't picture life without it. And it happened to me that night. I'm in this meeting and I am dying. What have I done? And, you know, they asked for the hand of the newcomer. Oh, here we go again. I put up this little claw. And a woman saw it in the middle of the room, and and she hit it back for me at the coffee break. And, you know, I saw her coming with that look. (laughs) And I thought, oh, no. She's going to hit on me. You know. (laughs) I mean, I'm completely insane. I looked terrible for months. Anyway, what she did was she came up to me and she sat down in the empty chair next to me and she she put her arms around my shoulders and she held on to me. Now, I I, I no one has touched me till then. I mean, they try, but I'm like, I'm a cactus, right? But, but this lady put her arm around my shoulder and she held on to me and this is the first miracle of my recovery because I didn't go away from her. and I felt that arm, I felt a human touch on me you know, when you're out there a long time you know, and people touch you for all their own reasons or they just walk away from you and this woman, she loved me and was loving her arm and uh, then she looked at me and she said going to be okay. And then the second miracle was that I believed her. Man, now now we're talking language of the heart and I let it in. And I'll forget, Miss Woodstock is gone. And for one minute I'm the kid in the bathroom just before I picked up the drink. Yes? She said, it's going to be okay. And then, then he helped me rent an apartment and moved out of the Rock and Roll Palace and I moved into a bright, sunny apartment in Los Angeles with big windows, window sunlight. And I dove into Alcoholics Anonymous and I dove into to the life here. I dove into the activity. And I let you love me. And I smiled and I tried to sound like you did, <laughs> you know. I tried to say I was grateful and I've been saying I'm a grateful alcoholic all these years. You know why I do it? because language is powerful. (coughs) Language is powerful. I littered my speech with all the bad language I could, you know. And so I thought, I'm going to try to talk a new way about Nancy. I'm going to say I'm grateful. I'm going to say I'm good. I'm going to say I'm worth something today. Why not? Why not? And so I started to build on that. And then, you know, later on, I went to college for a while and I had a professor say to me that language is is that powerful on you as heroin words the words i mean the words we say to ourselves in our in the stream of consciousness driving down the road you know how do you talk to yourself what do you call yourself bad names and he's sitting there saying this i'm going oh busted you know cause I'm you're really a fool why'd you do that what a good friend you are my... <laughs> that's not that's not goodness so anyway, I, I got involved in our Anonymous. I got, I was, my home group was the old Radford Club on Radford Street, and I went there and uh, and they saved my life. They say first it was through service, through doing the dishes and getting all the attention. You know that old broken performer needs a lot of attention, right? But so God, they gave it to her, so they did.
4: Yeah,
3: God, I just and it gives us what we need if we surrender to this way of life. And, you know, I got into the cups and washing the cups at Radford and that was a big deal. You know, I'm washing the cups and I'm like this baby, washing the cups. And, and all the heroes of the new meeting, Rosemary, Mel, Al-Bam, Mike Ross, all these old-time that would come into the kitchen, and they'd give me their cups with cigarettes on the bottom and Nipsey Grins on the side and they hand me their cups and they'd say, Oh, Nancy, you're doing a good job. And when they said that, this terrible wound, that we bring in to these rooms Heal a little bit more. You know, me I've been around with all the, you know, fancy stuff and thrown up on the famous shoes. But when the heroes of the noon meeting said I was doing a good job, this wound closed up a little bit more and something new took its place. New pink skin inside. A new heart started to beat, right? Beautiful. I'm having a good time now at all the new meetings with this. Oh, oh that's a, hey, that's a good time. So I'm washing dishes, I'm getting dishpan hands, and Angelo shows up. And he's a skinny drug addict with a great big plural 70s haircut, right? Well, it was a 70s, so. And he hears him say, for every cup you wash, you get another day of sobriety. Now I had a problem. (laughs) We say in the Lord's prayer and race into the kitchen, you know. (laughs) Who's going to get the glory? And you know, those drug drug addicts are fast, man. (laughs) But there's no waste in God's economy. That's something Bill wrote. There's no waste in God's economy. And we, we, we learned from the seemingly bad. And I got a beautiful lesson in a sober life. Because now I'm racing to the sink with Angelo and he's fast, man. And I, what I got to do was step back from the sink. And Angelo got to move in there. And I got to join the heroes of the noon meeting. And I got to come in and say, oh, Angelo, hey, you're doing a good job. <laughs> That feels even better. And that taught me that service in Alcoholics Anonymous goes on rotation here. That taught me there are no stars here. We love each other. There's real love in AA, real, impersonal, unconditional love. They promised me when I was new that they would, if I wanted to stay sober, they said, we'll go through everything with you. And man, they have. I've been through surgeries, and my mom dying, and school, and. We all went to school together and became a college English teacher. Because you went to school with me, man You did. You ran into all kinds of difficulties in school. My first semester, I couldn't read. I had brain damage. <laughs> 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 Just didn't know how to read. So so my sponsor was a teacher and I called her up and I said, I had this big sociology textbook, and I called her up and I said, I can't remember the computer and sentence I guess it was <laughs> it sounds like you need a meeting and I went to the meeting and somehow it all happened. I got into, I ran into, you know, quantum physics in a science class, well I'm not, quantum physics, jeez. And there's a guy in the meeting, he just happens to be a professor of quantum physics. So, I have meeting, we go out in the half-measures room and he helps me get through, you know. And then there's another guy Get to Canterbury, Chaucer, Canterbury Tales. And he's a Jesuit-educated, the club manager in Laguna Beach is Jesuit-educated. Jesuit he's been dying to talk about Chaucer's Canterbury Tales for years. Then <laughs> so we go to school together. You understand? The same success that I was having in Alcoholics Anonymous my first five years, I practiced those principles in the classroom. I show up, when you do your work or not, sit in front and ask questions. And say you're having a good time, regardless right yeah yeah and ask somebody else how they're doing yeah right so i became a college english teacher and then i uh and then the band got back together what's left of us (laughs) well there's three of us alive and we're and we're fatter and we have less hair but the world has welcomed us back the world has welcomed us back because it's a big beautiful world you know and because we know how to handle things better, disappointments, and go with the flow. And my life is—I don't live a perfect life. I live an everyday life, and I have disappointments and expectations, and um, get mixed up with the wrong man here and there. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think, as I stand here tonight, that there's anything on earth that I would do if it would take me away from you. There are women who call me their sponsor. And I mean, they open up to me, and I am available, and I am useful, and I can love them, and I can share with them. You know, that started early in my sobriety. And we used to say that a lot, you know it If you got two days, go say hello to somebody with two minutes. If you got two days, you got something, right? And if I don't drink today, I got something. I got something. Well, it's like four minutes to ten. See, I told you I could do it. I could do your whole week <laughs> But um, and I don't have a fabulous clothes. I don't. I forgot to think of it. You know, <laughs> usually you're heading for it, but um, <laughs> getting from that fabulous where they go. But I don't have that.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I have learned enough El Caxonimus to be a real person. And I have to tell you that that is a real gift of love and the people. And I need the people. I need the steps. I need the principles. I need the people. And I need God. I got a nice 11th step going in the morning, I God and the cats, right? I have the AA cats, the ubiquitous AA cats, and um, and I have a nice little house, and then I get ready in the morning to come out and share with everybody, here and outside. It's beautiful. So, I love you guys. You're going to have a fantastic, I've seen the lineup, and you have got some weekend coming up here. Thank you. so much Nancy, let's thank her again. It was so great.